Hello, beautiful listeners. It's Rob with Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. We know you love the stories we tell, and we love telling them. However, producing and hosting the podcast is not free, but there's a way you can help. Find us on Patreon. Our Patreon members get access to exclusive content, early episode releases, and all other sorts of goodies. Go to www.patreon.com slash trrpod for as little as a buck a month. Every cent we take in goes back to making the show bigger and better. Thank you, we love you, and as always, hold fast and enjoy the show. So, uh, guys, I was I, I, every once in a while I search odd news, and I found this on HuffPo, and I had to read it to you. Court rules Pablo Escobar's cocaine hippos are okay. legally people. And bear in mind, this is a U.S. court case. Okay, define cocaine hippos. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah. Okay, first You off, had me with Escobar. <laughs> right. But the uh, hook was the cocaine hippos. The late Escobar's <laughs> infamous cocaine hippos were defined by the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Ohio, believe it or not. Okay. Ohio, as legal persons for the first time in the United States. Now, if this goes to trial again, do the hippos have to represent themselves? I don't know. And <laughs> if a hippo wears pants, <laughs> how would the hippo wear the pants? What do you have to what do you have to say for your what do you have to say for the defense? <laughs> this is what this is apparently uh, the Animal Legal Defense Fund. So, I mean, I guess they got legal aid. Mm. Uh, well, they're, they're so, co- so. Are these are these they're bunch co-heads. of no, <laughs> are these a bunch of hippos running around with you know ideas for a pilot and they're you know they're going to ru- we need to start we need to start a fucking business man <laughs> just going to yeah. run this town one day yeah it's just a bunch of hippos like standing on a balcony looking out over Los Angeles saying that they run the town oh, we need to get an RV and go to Joshua Tree man we need to get an RV our life is like a movie bro our life is like a movie and then they're just in the handicap stall with like four other hippos well they're um, apparently according to the article. They may not be actually cocaine-addicted hippos. The hippos are descendants of four <laughs> illegally imported by Pablo Escobar. I thought it was more yeah. than four. I knew he bought them because he thought they would be fun to have. Well, let me continue. Well, the man did have his own <laughs> private zoo at yeah. La Hacienda. They were set free after his death in 1993. Which is what you do with an illegal zoo in Colombia. You just they, just, just fuck open it. the door and then we're good. Yeah, exactly. Good good luck out there, cocaine hippos. So these cocaine hippos, if they were on cocaine, it's now an intergenerational problem and the state needs to step in. Right. God, those things are fast. <laughs> the, now, the one, the one unsung hero here is definitely the vet that was sterilizing the hippos. Oh, boy. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> How do you even start that? Like, what a job. <laughs> a, a lot a, a lot of, of anesthetic, I would assume. I, yeah, for the guy doing it first. <laughs> <laughs> and then whatever's left over is for the hippos. I bet that wins the challenge contest at the bar, and he just takes chicks home because he's, oh, what do you do? I fly airplanes. Well, what do you do? I'm a sports ca- caster. What do you do? I sterilize hippos. <laughs> I sterilize cocaine hippos. <laughs> you remember those hippos that Pablo Escobar used to have? Yeah, I cut their nuts off. That is that yeah. is a job. Yeah, that's that's Bill Brasky level <laughs> shit there. <laughs> I don't even know how you start to do it. You like a chainsaw or something? Like 
<laughs> be bad, we bad, we quiet. I mean, now I want to know more about the vet because they were sterilizing them. So, like, I, oh, I mean, how do you sneak up on a hippo that's janked out of its mind? Yeah, just all schneefed up. <laughs> Apparently, there's 80 of them now. Yeah. Can you imagine how fucking inbred they are, too? Good uh, Lord, imagine what they look like. <laughs> they all, I think I know who they look they like. Look like surre- I think they, I know who they look they like. Look he like, surrendered to federal authorities yesterday. Uh, <laughs> oh, I was, I was actually uh, going to go with West Virginia Governor Jimmy Justice. But. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is with, it with rich no people offense, Jimmy, buying, I, I, buying I, exotic animals? Yeah, I know. What, that uh, leads maybe. us naturally. <laughs> Which leads us naturally to our subject today. Welcome to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades, everybody. I'm Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. And I am the Padre, Michael Ernett. And Kyle Graper is sadly not with us for today's episode because he is on vacation. He is sterilizing cocaine hippos. <laughs> he, uh, no, know. he's not. <laughs> he's not here. He's not here. What a loser. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Dork. Uh, off in a warm, beautiful place with a lovely woman who loves him. What a I chump. think the reason why he's like, I can't prove whether or not he's actually there. Like, we're getting photos back, but that could be stock. I think the reason why he's not doing this episode is misogyny. No. <laughs> No, no, he's no. not here to defend himself. So we're really laying it on Kyle this episode. We well, look, talked about well, it before I, we started. I, look, I know, I know. I, in fact, I was just going to mention the fact that you keep saying that he's sending pictures, but he's sending pictures literally from Skid Row. <laughs> that is true. Kyle did send us an up close picture of the Cecil Hotel. We were like, buddy, I don't know if you're cut out for that. Environment. It's, yeah, it's just full and, of ghouls. And, and, and he he even said, "I'm staying like three blocks away." Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if, like, dude, you're in the land of the Night Stalker and, 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 and. The Cecil's closed, right? Not because of, like, anything untoward, but they were renovating it. As far I, as I know, they, yes. they're trying to make sure yeah, that don't, all the women are out of the cistern. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they opened it was just nothing but missing women. Like, oh way, damn it! I like how you thought that was in the seventies, right? <laughs> it's just like naturally, I was like, well, this fucked up thing happened in L.A., so yeah, probably like the seventies. Did you watch the documentary? I did not. Uh, okay. Obviously, I did not. Well, that, I ex- it was that like explains 74. why. Well, that explains why because their like, primary suspect was a guy who did heavy metal covers on YouTube. Uh, so. but that has like like real strong like boogie nights vibe. But, but oh, dude, very much right? so. yeah, I, I agree. But dude, you didn't even get the right century. Yeah. Not yeah. even just the wrong decade. <laughs> right. The right yeah. You were off yeah, by about 40 years. But anytime anything weird happens in LA, like all the weird funny shit that happened was like whenever Tiki was big in LA. Yeah, yeah that's true. <sighs> well, uh, speaking of women going missing and, uh, well, people going missing and, uh, <laughs> uh feral animals. Yeah, that, menageries. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> menageries and ill-gotten gains. That's all probably going to tie into our subject today, which is Imelda Marcos. The woman of a million shoes. Mm. Mm. I've been I've been looking forward to this one for the last couple weeks. So Imelda Marcos, first uh, former first lady of the Philippines, was known as a fashion icon and the public face of an authoritarian regime that in a very complicated time and place strode the delicate balance of the realpolitik while at the same time heading possibly the biggest kleptocracy the world's ever seen and managing to also help head up a psychotically murderous and oppressive government to boot. Uh, she's known for having risen from a state of shame and fallen wealth to the greatest heights, then fallen back again, and then actually mostly risen again. Yeah. Uh, managing to avoid justice all the way, uh, the main focus through the whole process being her decorative and her sartorial tastes. I made the best way I would describe this woman at the outset of learning about this is she's what would happen if Joel Osteen and Hillary Clinton 
had a daughter mm. that married <laughs> Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's funny you yeah. say that because Imelda Marcos was very close personal friends with Donald Trump. Yeah, right. back in the early nineties. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, who'd have thought that he would be associating with somebody who's under indictment constantly? <laughs> and the only other person I know that Did owns a just, solid gold toilet. Yeah. Did you just describe the entire administration, White House administration, from 2016 to 2020? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> in, in, in a sentence. <laughs> By the way, guys, it. I'm, I'm going ra- to I'm going to lay you down. You leave the mooch out of this, you <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> as uh, as three white boys, I'm laying down a ground rule: no Filipino accents. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> We're not doing it. We're I do not have. Doing it. I do have a Filipino friend. I should have brought him in this. But uh, so before we proceed with the story today, I want to give honor to our sources. I use two primary sources for my research for this. We have uh, the Marcos Dynasty, the corruption of Ferdinand and and Imelda Marcos by Sterling Seagrave, which is a hell of a name. That's a sweet name. That's a secret agent name. And then we have the Conjugal Dictatorship by Primitivo Mijares, uh, which is... A, a, a term I've heard, I've seen used to describe these two, uh, Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos, quite a lot. And I think it works because this is not a dictatorship of one leader. It's no. a dictatorship of one official leader, but Imelda's really behind it, pulling a lot of the strings. And it she's, was, she's it's not also the only because one, one was, work, a, but... was terrified to leave his house. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, one, before we uh, move on from sources, um, over the weekend, I did watch the documentary Kingmaker. Oh yeah, uh, by Very Lauren good. Greenfield. Holy shit! I rented it. I wish I would have just mm-hmm. bought it. Yeah, but yeah, it's good. Oh my god! Yeah, it's one of those docs you can definitely go back and watch again. And then I ended up watching the, and it it turns out that it's almost an hour long. Uh, it is an interview with Imelda Marcos and Ruby Wax, oh. the the British comedian. Well, I guess who's yeah. like American com- born, yeah. American born British comedian. Yeah, but. And it's obviously like a joke, but Amelda has no idea. No and it's just no. Ruby Wax like nervously looking into the camera the whole time because like this woman has killed before. Oh, yes. <laughs> and it's just, oh man, yeah. it is bananas. Yeah. I've heard excerpts. I haven't seen the whole thing. Uh, Kingmaker um, is excellent. And it's, it's, it's and the sort of documentary you watch, you invite friends over to watch. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. Um, as far as my sources, um, I, also the Kingmaker, and a I got to give a shout out to a podcast, just the gist. It's an Australian podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mm-hmm. I I didn't know it's, they did a Marcos episode. Yeah, they did fun. a Marcos episode, yeah, and it's it kind was, of a regional mm-hmm. thing for the Australians. Yeah, isn't yeah. Not that yeah. Far away. And you know, oddly, they didn't know that much about it. Yeah. My second source she, is uh, she covered Harvey Weinstein at, at, like at length. I remember she was yeah. super invested in that. I do yeah. remember that. Yeah. Um, and actually, she mentions it in the, in the Amelda part, uh, podcast. She does updates on it. Did they know each other? I wouldn't I, be surprised. I would, not, <laughs> would not be surprised. Um, and my other source is, and I rarely get to say this on one of our things, the news at the time. Yeah, yeah. seriously. Like, yeah, I mean, we all remember biggest, this. Yeah. Well, your biggest source was being born in 1974. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like we, we all remember the shoots like, distinctly. We mm-hmm. all remember this. <laughs> Like her, her, like their official downfall. I, ha- I think happened a little bit before you, mm. Kyle, or I were, were were born. But her, she stayed in the news. Well, she stayed in she's the news to the present in day. The news. She's still in the news. But it, it, like I remember as a kid seeing this woman on TV as she was dealing with court cases in the, you know, yeah. in New York. Mm. Now remember, I was a thirteen-year-old boy when the events that we will eventually get to mm. happened. 
and some of these stories, they're going to sound ludicrous. Yeah. But I watched it on the evening news. This stuff actually happening at the Manila airport. Yeah. So should we uh, proceed with the story I, of the Manila I want to know how you plan on shaking this out. Because the one thing that I'm going to lead you, dear listener, uh, I'm sure you have, if, if you know anything about Imelda Marcos, uh, I, it's probably this. But how can somebody this patently stupid be this unbelievably successful at crime? Well, <laughs> part of the story we're going to tell is she may not be that stupid. Well, she might. She might. She I don't might be necessarily candid, like. I've listened to the interviews and they're not. Good. Well, you can be. I, I think you can be cunning without being intelligent. Like we've seen that so much in this country in the last half a decade but it's it's you know I, I think you can have a certain cunning to you and not she also she did have the benefit of quite a bit of insulation oh absolutely we're gonna get to that yeah. too I mean she yeah she was I mean she and she and Ferdinand also sat at the top of a whole operation they are the mm-hmm. central figures but you have to have a lot of people greasing the skids for you for this to work and, and Ferdinand was definitely cunning Oh, absolutely. Like he was, yeah, like this dude knew exactly what he was absolutely. doing. But we're not talking also, about him, we're talking about her. But, but see, I would also suggest that he was he was kind of a beta boy yeah. at certain points. Well, we are going to talk about him a lot because the story is intertwined and it becomes the story of a couple. But, so yeah, so let's proceed with the story of Imelda Marcos. The Philippines. A nation archipelago made up of 7,640 islands. You know what else is a nation made up of many islands? Estonia. Mm. Our dear Estonian friends. There's over 2,000 islands, as a matter of fact. Nice. <laughs> you this did has promise. Been, this has been your Estonia fact of the day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, we have a new running bit. Oh, shit. So, yes, home to dozens of different ethnic groups, 19 officially recognized languages, and many different and competing faiths, some developed by the indigenous population, others imposed by other powers exerting their influence over the centuries. The Philippines have had quite the ride since the closing of the 19th century. That, well, actually, they've had quite the ride for centuries before as the linchpin of Spain's colonial empire in the Pacific and as a focal point for the fighting that took place during the Spanish-American War. As the 20th century dawned, the Philippines had changed hands and become, had become an American colony in all but name, technically a dependency, but under the governorship of the Americans. It became a home to military bases, crucial to America's increasing ability to project power beyond its shores, but it also made it a target. Some of the best naval bases on the planet mm-hmm. ever, I promise you. <laughs> and so during the Second World War, I'm sure we'll hear about that later. <laughs> yeah. God, Padre's adventures in Subic Bay. Ugh. So during the Second World War, the nation suffer, uh, suffered for three years under a brutal occupation by the Japanese, and it was savaged by the Allied efforts to retake the country in late 44 and 45. After finally achieving independence in 1946, the Philippines struggled to find its footing with free and fair elections and representative uh, government, and the figures we'll be discussing today are central to that complicated journey that is still ongoing. It's hard to believe that United States military occupation didn't totally stabilize everything, and it was just great for all involved. Yeah, who'd have thunk it? Really breaks the track record. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, whether as a colonial possession or an independent nation, the Philippines' critical location within the Asian Pacific region has left it subject to the influences of the nations at work around it. The colonial powers of the United States, the British, the French, the Spanish, the Dutch, always tried to exert soft or hard power, and then there was the pool of more local powers like the Australians, the Indonesians, uh, to the south and to the north, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Taiwanese, and several other Asian nations. Uh, During the years of the Cold War, special focus fell on the Philippines, 
as it became a low-intensity battleground in the conflict between the efforts of the Soviet Union and China to expand international communism and the efforts to slow that spread by a coalition of nations led by the United States. Now, from the late 1940s onwards, in order to stop the expansion of communism and check the growth of the emergent red superpowers, the United States was willing to play ball with any leaders who would work to put down those sorts of Marxist movements in their country, and let's be honest, it led to us getting into bed with some real shit stains. Uh, at best, hideously corrupt, or at worst, willing to go at their own people with a near-genocidal drive, some of the figures we got into, uh, we, we uh, got on board with from No Dinh Yem in South Vietnam, Augusto Pinochet in Chile, to Papa Doc Duvalier in Haiti, were some of the biggest monsters to ever walk this planet. I don't believe our State Department would ever do that. No. I mean, that's like suggesting that, uh, you, that we gave Stinger missiles to the Mojahideen or something. That never happened. There was never a Tom Hanks movie about that. <laughs> <laughs> so the couple that sits at the heart of today's story is well ensconced within these ranks. The regime of Ferdinand Marcos is one of the most corrupt to have ever existed. A combination of iron-fisted autocracy, organized crime outfit, and sheer lunatic depravity. It was Ferdinand who was the face and name behind the administration, the one who was officially in charge, but who have never gotten to the point that it reached without the influence of Imelda Marcos. Imelda Remedios Visitacion Trinidad Romualdez was born on the 2nd of July, 1929, in San Miguel, a neighborhood of Manila, the Philippine capital, the sixth of an eventual 11 children of Vicente Orestes Romualdez, a lawyer, and the firstborn son, or the firstborn child, excuse me, of his second wife, Remedios Trinidad. At one day old, she would be baptized as a Catholic at the nearby Catedral de San Miguel y los Arcangeles, as was fitting her family's status. The Romualdez clan were wealthy and influential, and had been for quite some time, being one of the families that practically ran the island of Leyte. Now, they were proud of their status as mestizo anakpara, or friar mixtures, those family lines that had started as the illegitimate children of Spanish priests. Vicente's older brother, Norberto, was an associate justice in the Philippine Supreme Court and would go on to become a member of the national legislature, and many other members of both sides of the family had influential positions either in local or provincial government or ran thriving businesses. However, <clears throat> everyone followed the lead of the family matriarch, Doña Trinidad, possibly one of the most powerful and influential women in the Philippines at that time. Nothing was done in the family that she didn't know about, and what she said went, which would make her quite the aspirational figure in young Imelda's eyes. It didn't take long, however, for the fortunes of Imelda's father to begin to wane. By 1931, his law practice was struggling, and he was hemorrhaging cash due to his massive family and trying to keep up a lavish lifestyle. And while the Romualdez clan at large was wealthy, they weren't exactly charitable, to those who were feeling financial pressure. Imelda's parents actually separated for a time, with uh, Remedio's kids living in a nearby convent, and uh, they did reconcile, although to avoid further conflict, Remedio's Trinidad and her kids, all five of them, with one on the way, moved into the house's garage. However, after Imelda's youngest sibling was born in 1937, Remedio's health took a nosedive, and she never recovered from the trauma of the birth, and Imelda's mother died on April 7, 1938, when Imelda was only eight years old. Now, a single dad with 11 kids, uh, Vicente sold his lavish home and his law practice for pennies on the dollar and moved the family out of Manila back to the family's ancestral home in the city of Tacloban. They bought like a big multicolored bus and they just <laughs> sang their way there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, I have a plan. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the city of Tacloban on the island of Leyte to live a lifestyle that was easier to maintain. 
Now, this downfall of fortune was seen as a stain on the family's image, and the whole Romualdez clan, from Doña Trinidad on down, never let Vicente or the kids forget it, and neither did the students and staff at the boarding school young Imelda would attend as something of a charity case. Now, Imelda was an average student, nothing exceptional, except in the case of languages, where she had a particular aptitude. She had grown up in Manila speaking Spanish, but in the course of her time in Tacloban, she would learn the indigenous languages of Waray and Tagalog, along with English, Chinese, and French. Now, she was said to be proud and pompous as a girl, which I can't tell if that was a reaction to how people treated her because of her family's fallen status, or it's the reason they treated her that way. Well, one of the things that, and I could see why she would have, why, well, actually, um, anyone in Philippine culture would have a particular deptness for language. Mm-hmm. Because um, I was in the Navy with several um, Philippine friends, and uh, one of the things that they discuss is the fact that the way that uh, the way the language of Tagalog is, people in the north can't understand people on, in the south of their own island. There's like a thousand dialects. Yeah. Well, so, it's, sort of, it's sort of like Britain. It's a ton of different, very distinct dialects mm-hmm. crammed into a very small space. Right. It's essentially the same language, but you hear if you hear somebody from London and somebody from Cumbria both speaking English, it sounds very, very different. Right. So on I mean, s- try to have a conversation yeah. with somebody that's Creole. You're oh, both yeah. speaking English, but <laughs> I don't get it. Well, even Joe Dirt <laughs> makes fun of it. Sorry, buddy. You like these homeboys naked? <laughs> Sorry, buddy. I don't speak banjo. Yeah. So on December 8th, 1941, when Imelda was 13, everything changed in the Philippines. In concert with the Kido Butai's massive strike on Pearl Harbor, the Japanese launched an invasion of the Philippines to wrest control away from the Americans and as pretty much everyone who has a cursory knowledge of the course of World War II knows, it didn't go well for the Americans. By the end of April 1942, the Japanese had assumed full control over the country. What began was a brutal occupation that would see the Filipino population suffer heavily, caught between the Japanese garrison forces and the American-supported guerrillas trying to resist them. Hundreds of thousands would die before American forces would return to the area en masse in October of 1944, which would lead to the deaths of perhaps over a million more Filipinos in the fighting over the next six months. Yeah, things in Manila did not go great for a very long time. No. That's why we have a guided missile cruiser named the Leyte Gulf. Mm-hmm. Now, Imelda and her siblings were pulled out of their boarding schools, and a good thing, too, because the Catholic-run schools became targets for Japanese forces, who killed or interned most of the staff, and often would take the girls for use as comfort women, quote-unquote, for their forces. Mm-hmm. Now, I couldn't You know fi- that practice is still a thing? It's super upsetting. Uh, do yourselves a favor and Google comfort women. Educate yourself about it and usually attach these articles as a charity that does something about it. Yes. Uh, yeah, so definitely look that one up. Consider donating. Yes. Now, I couldn't find much on how the Romualdez clan navigated the Japanese occupation in particular, as many of the uh, records of such things were destroyed under the later Marcos government. But the impression I've gotten from the sources is that they managed to do a pretty good job of either keeping a low pro- profile or managing to play both sides of the coin, managing not to attract the wrath of either the Japanese occupiers or vengeful Filipino guerrillas. Now, there is evidence to suggest that Vicente was not working at all during the occupation and wasn't bringing in anything to support the family, the kids surviving on food brought in by Imelda's older half-sisters who worked with the Board of Rationing for the Tacloban area. Not every member of the Romualdez clan avoided being touched by the war, um, and several records of uh, extended family members cease during this period, but nothing conclusive as to their fates has ever been found. You know, we talk about how like hundreds of thousands of people died during the course of the Japanese occupation. I mean, there are also hundreds of thousands more who were missing, never heard from again, at least in the official sense. There may be 
you know, stories or, or family testimony talking about what happened to them. But anything written down on paper, who knows? Well, people, I mean, one of the things about World War II is that there's the, the, the atrocities that took place in um, in the Atlantic Theater, in the, in the, in the European Theater, I did, are rightfully, you know, expounded upon at a great length. Yeah. But the Pacific Theater, the, the Imperial Japanese were just as vicious. Absolutely. Oh, they were unbelievably uh, ruthless. And it was also yeah. based on, on ethnic and... and yeah. Right, there on, was on ethnic grounds too. There was some score settling. Yeah, like yeah. look, there was look at Manchuria too. Yeah, it got it got really really vicious. I mean, millions and millions of people. Everything that was done to the Chinese mm-hmm. civilian population. I mean, they were put to the sword. Yeah, it was it was awful. Um, Dan Carlin series Supernova in the Pacific. The first couple episodes specifically too that deal with the lead up to the Second World War and the first like year deal with it very heavily. Right. Uh, definitely consider that giving that a, a listen. So upon the arrival of American forces in late 44, Taklaban was among the first areas to be scoured of Japanese presence, and it didn't take long for Imelda's life to kind of get back on track. Her father was offered a position teaching at the local law school, and she entered high school a couple of years late, but that wasn't exactly controversial given the exceptional circumstances of war. She was exposed to American GIs en masse and to American entertainment, and she began idolizing the glamour of the women in the movies that the American forces would show to the local population. She began to aspire to some sort of public fame, casting her eyes towards the stage or screen, but it was her father's desperate desire to maintain a low profile that helped keep her down to earth. Now, Imelda found a job working in the high school library, but she was limited by her father's rules to buying only two new dresses a year and only owning one pair of shoes at a time. This is going to be an important bookmark. Those are things that she kept dear to her heart for the rest of her days. Uh, he also kept her away from most social events and after-school activities, causing this teenage girl now yearning to be a part of something wider to grow a bit of a chip on her shoulder. Now, by the time Imelda graduated high school at age 19 in 1948, she was beginning to grow more and more hopeful of leaving the stifling social environment her father had insisted upon, and in the meantime, her family was beginning to re-emerge to prominence in the post-war newly independent Philippines, including many uh, family members serving in the national legislature and as head of the corporation set up to funnel American aid money into projects meant to stimulate the economy. Meant to. Meant to. Meant and to. and <laughs> early on, it actually did, like, that's that like extension that, of the Marshall that money Plan. Did go. There was quite worked. a bit of, of hush money mm-hmm. that uh, fell to the, the people who were essentially installed in yes. the Philippines. So they, the stage is set mm-hmm. for people like Ferdinand Marcos. Yes. And, and it... Things tended to work a little better when there was still a lot of more hands-on American management of those funds, like in-country. Eventually, that got dialed back, and we'll begin to see the effects of that. So, uh, Imelda was admitted to St. Paul's College in Tacloban to pursue an education degree. Once she entered her 20s, her father reluctantly began allowing her to enter the social scene as well. Her family name grabbing people's attention, but for the most part, she didn't make that great of an impression. Her public persona somewhat underdeveloped due to her previous poverty and sheltered life, and the sophisticated social sets are as nothing more than a provincial naïve. Uh, Imelda, however, was a pretty quick study. She spent her university years cultivating a, f- a true public presence, growing on people as her confidence increased alongside her family's prominence, helped along in not so small a way due to her surprisingly great singing voice. I don't know that I would call it surprisingly great. You can listen to it. Yeah. Have you listened to it? Well, it did you is it recordings of her when she was younger? Uh no, this because, this would have been her probably I mean some look she looks to be like in her 30s. Mhm. Because because here's the thing, she we 
She was good until she started smoking. Well, is she bad or is she Yoko Ono bad? It's it, there's a lot of Yoko influence mm-hmm. in there. Okay, so, yeah. but there are some earlier recordings uh, of her from when she went on to study voice at Philippine Women's University that are actually not bad. Uh, it, should also, it should also be noted that in the early 50s, whenever you get to finally see a lot of the pictures, like whenever she was at university and stuff, she was striking. Mm-hmm. She was a gorgeous she was striking young woman. and very beautiful. And she was five seven, which yeah. I mean, what was the average height for men in the Philippines at that time? Probably I, not five seven. This became I, a this became yeah. a bit of a sticking point. Yeah, <laughs> in, I in think, a few years, I think the average height was yeah. uh, uh, from what I from what I read. Uh, was like five four. Yeah. So, yeah, so not only was she significantly taller, si- like taller than everyone else, she was also gorgeous. I mean, mm-hmm. that's one thing that the the, the Imelda Marcos that we know now, uh, like that, like super what? stern hatchet face. Like this is not. Of course, <laughs> even not. even so, I mean, I, I saw a picture of her. I think from 2019, which is when she would have been 90. You know, there are women that you can look at and say, she's old now. But you could tell at one point in her life she was gorgeous. She still has a certain air of... Mm-hmm. So, uh, by the time of Imelda's graduation, she had been elected student council president and had run through a pretty large set of potential suitors, none of whom her father found acceptable. But it was time for da- uh, her dad's little baby bird to leave the nest, since everyone was convinced that Imelda's talents were being wasted in Taklaban. So just shy of her 23rd birthday, Imelda moved to Manila living with the family of her cousin, Danielle, who had just become Speaker of the House of Representatives. So a position of very great influence indeed. Now, the move to the big city didn't start off super well, considering her family name and their influence. Imelda found a job as a shop clerk selling sheet music, but when her father threw an actual, an absolute fit, believing that his daughter was being treated as an inferior, Imelda began working as a clerk at the Philippine Central Bank and taking voice lessons at Philippine Women's University in the evening. While her work situation wasn't yet what she had aspired to, thanks to her cousin's position as speaker and head of the Nacionalista Party, she was now absolutely in the beating heart of the Filipino oligarchy social scene. Sterling Seagrave describes it thus, quote, Congressman Daniel's home was a center of political activity for the Nacionalistas. Frequent parties and open houses brought clouds of political mosquitoes, and as Daniel had anticipated, they swarmed around Imelda. Many were members of the oligarchy, some the sons of billionaires, their lawyers, their generals or colonels, with a sprinkling around the edge of the lower castes, people who knew how to do things with their own hands, doctors, architects, columnists, and so on. I don't know that I've ever heard an architect described as somebody who can like work with their hands. I don't know that I've ever heard mm-hmm. an architect described as that. No. Of the 400 families... That was Mike Brady. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of the 400 families who owned everything in the islands, many were represented here. Self-important men in embroidered barongs opened at the throat, sipping cocktails while their heavily armed chauffeurs and bodyguards sweated in the tropical night outside, grinding out cigarette butts with their steel-tipped stomping shoes. Among so many admirers, there was no question that Imelda could have found someone to marry with money, looks, haciendas, yachts, planes, offshore portfolios, and a few Arabians for breeding purposes. Don't know if he's talking about horses or what, but... I hope so. Oh my God! And you didn't want me to go with that. <laughs> you can't just you Weird. can't just what is serve it? one up to him like that. What is it with women in power and horses <laughs> and breeding? I mean, 
Catherine the Great. I'm just hanging yeah. with the Arabians. I was like, oh, God, here we go. I knew I'd get it in there. I told you. I told you that guys. Was a softball, man. My that supporters, a- my Patreon people, you know I'm here. I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Part of me picking that quote was not only what it described, but, but the fact that it did mention horses, breeding, and shoes. Just a softball, man. <laughs> So in 1953, Imelda ran a campaign to be chosen as Miss Manila, in which she bypassed all the usual channels of application and used her family's influence on the main arbiter of the contest, the mayor of Manila, who it's worth noting would die of a sex-fueled heart attack in a few years with another Miss Manila contestant. Nice. Good so, for him. Yeah. <laughs> so plenty of those... What are, a way to go. Yeah. <laughs> it's the American dream. <laughs> so plenty of those around her had her convinced that she was a shoe-in to win, but there were plenty of other people who weren't so convinced, believing that she was immature and had rough taste in fashion and entertainment. Now, Amelda chose to ignore the naysayers, and her belief in her own appeal would go on to feed her own self-image for the rest of her life. Even after she lost the Miss Manila contest to another young woman, she convinced supporters... <laughs> yeah, a couple redundant. of the judges just decided that, nah, no, she won. It was yeah. the Russian one. Well, yeah. And, <laughs> and, oh, and by the way, you know how she lost it? This is apocryphal. She didn't say... I want world peace. <laughs> so even after she lost the Miss Manila contest, she convinced supporters to file an appeal of the decision, citing voting irregularities and possible fraud. This is all starting to sound kind of familiar. Uh, the mayor decided... What, be- fraud? Fraud and beauty pageants and <laughs> presidential pardons Well, I mean, it's not that kind of beauty pageant. She was like 23. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she was 13. Like, now we're talking. Yeah. <laughs> now, even after... So, the mayor decided that the best course of action was to send both Imelda and the actual winner to the Miss Philippines contest, which caused quite the scandal. But And, and the two winners... And of the two winners present from Manila, uh, neither won the title of Miss Philippines. Uh, Imelda would go on to spend her life repeatedly stating that she was the true winner of Miss Manila... And eventually that would go on to become the popular narrative. It was because of all the mail-in ballots. Yeah. I'm sorry. You throw in the mooch, and you throw in a pee-pee tape, <laughs> and this was just a blueprint. Yeah. And we're just <laughs> getting started. I'm, I'm wondering if there were people in, in, in 2020. We are going to talk about a sex tape at some point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, yes, we are. So um, on April 6th, 1954, everything would change for Melda. She had gone to attend a budget hearing at the House of Representatives, sitting in the gallery with members of her family, when she caught the eye of a congressman from the Liberal Party. He asked the journalist's friend to introduce him to the attractive young woman, after making sure that he was at least an inch taller than her. <laughs> it had to be an inch. Like, he like watches her walk through a door and then hurries over to it and stands next to it and does the hand on the door on the door That's, jam thing. He's like, I got it. Yeah, the sources don't really say how he got his journalist buddy to mate to prove that she was five seven or less, but yeah, I don't know. And uh, and that's when Imelda met Ferdinand Marcos. So Ferdinand Emmanuel Edralin Marcos was born on September eleventh, nineteen seventeen in the province of Ilocos Norte, to the, uh, in the very north of the Philippine North Island of Luzon. His father, Mariano, was a lawyer and a congressman, his mother, Josefa, a schoolteacher. He grew up privileged and was well-educated, excelling as a student and as an athlete, particularly as a boxer and wrestler, and he went on to study law, registering the highest bar exam score in his class at the University of the Philippines in 1939. This is a matter of, of actual record, not altered records right. that would happen later on. So this is uh, quite remarkable, considering that in 1938, 
Ferdinand was arrested and tried for the assassination of his father's main political rival, who had been killed by a rifle shot through the window while brushing his teeth the day after defeating um, Ferdinand's dad for a seat in the legislature. Now, Ferdinand was found guilty and received a death sentence, but the case was appealed within the Philippine Supreme Court, and all involved were acquitted due to lack of evidence. So uh, Marcos had attended ROTC in college, and when the reserves were called up in June of 1941, when tensions with Japan were growing, Marcos joined the armed forces in the Philippines as a third lieutenant, which is a little weird because technically the Filipino forces were part of the U.S. military, but third lieutenant is a rank that's never existed in the U.S. military. So I don't know. I, I don't know. But uh, Ferdinand actually did see combat during the Japanese invasion, though how much he saw and how intense it was is a matter of long debate later on. Now, he was captured in April of 1942, but unlike most Filipino soldiers who, suffer, who suffered for years in Japanese POW camps with horrific loss of life, Marcos was released in August of 1942, which is suspicious as fuck. So it's likely yeah, that he there's was... there's only usually one way you get released from a prisoner of war. Yeah, thing. it's likely that he was released due to his father's cooperation with Japanese forces, and this is borne out because Mariano Marcos was killed by Filipino guerrillas in May of 1945 for collaboration by being disemboweled with a bolo machete and then torn into multiple pieces after being tied to four water buffalo being, car- being pulled in different directions, with his head and his torso left tied to a tree with a sign around his neck laying out his crimes against his own people. Now, Ferdinand would rejoin the U.S. forces in late 1944 when they returned under MacArthur and would leave the Army in May of 45 with the rank of Major, which is right up there with Dick Winters in terms of climbing the ranks that fast. So in 1949, Marcos was elected to his father's old House of Representatives seat where he would serve three terms and earn a place on several committees. It was in one of those committees in 1954 that he and Imelda met. Now, this, there was one problem. Marcos already had a common-law wife since 1947 named Carmen Ortega, with whom he had three children and one on the way, and uh, the two had become officially engaged the previous autumn. We don't really know what happened to Carmen and the kids, but it seems that he just kicked his pregnant partner and his own kids to the curb, agreeing to pay under-the-table child support in exchange. Ferdinand was completely smitten with Imelda, and in the next few days, which happened to be the start of Holy Week... I would go so far as to say... He gets pretty stalkery. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is like but creep he did, level he, stalkery. he did propose marriage after 20 minutes. They talked for 20 minutes. He he proposed to her, and she was like, you're married, though. Yeah. <laughs> so at least she did pump the brakes on it. And it's not because she wasn't into the dude. I mean, But he's, they stayed in the same place for two weeks. Well, he... And he, every day... Well, I mean, the thing is, too, like, he drove her. Look, you, look at, you look at old photos of him from the late 40s, early 50s. He's a handsome cat. Oh, absolutely. They, they were a, a very attractive dude. couple. Yeah. But uh, it, and it wasn't because, you know, like, you know, it, she wasn't turned off at the fact that he was married. You just can't be double married. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, that was the only reason. Like, yeah, I'll marry you, but, like, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> but so, yeah, so in the next few days, which happened to be the start of Holy Week, which is a big deal in a mainly Catholic country like the Philippines. Marcos followed Imelda up to her family's holiday home. Booking, he drove her there. Booking a room in a nearby hotel and visiting her daily, showering her with gifts and flowers. Now, this is starting to sound like all of our grandparents. So how'd you meet Grandma? Well, I just annoyed her and, and wouldn't leave her alone until she finally gave up. Yeah, yeah. but they, they didn't annoy her for a week. <laughs> At her family's vacation home. <laughs> 
didn't we, generally didn't propose after eleven days. That kind of reads or like twenty a, minutes. Yeah, yeah. that kind of reads like a Hughes movie, though. Yeah, yeah it kind of does. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. You kind of expect Molly Ringwald to <laughs> yeah. be in there somewhere. Yeah. So it was on Good Friday that he appeared at the family home, interrupting festivities with a marriage license, pleading with her to sign the agreement and seal things up. It had been eleven days since they met. <laughs> that is like a, he said they wanted to be fucking. That's a move. When do you get when, when do you get people that age? When they don't want to be fucking. (laughs) So Imelda's father threw an absolute shit fit, as you would expect, and the rest of the family wasn't exactly thrilled at the circumstance. But you know what? She signed it anyway. She caved because she realized, oh, he's not married anymore. Right. Fastest divorce in history. It didn't involve a fatality. Right. So the following day, April 17th, 1954, the two were secretly married by a judge. A church wedding followed only after a resigned Vicente finally gave his message, or finally gave his blessing to the marriage via telegram the next day after the couple eloped on a honeymoon. That is, you, you can hear the sigh of resignation. So, returning to Manila, the couple set about the business of starting a family, and it didn't take long. In November of 1955, Maria Ilmelda Josefa, known to everyone as Ime, was born, followed in September of 1957 by Ferdinand Jr., Known as Bong Bong. Bong Bong. And Maria Irena Celestina, simply uh, known as Irena, in September of 1960. Now, in the 1959 elections, Ferdinand won a seat in the Filipino Senate, becoming the Senate Minority Floor Leader only six months later, and party president of the Liberal Party starting in 1961, followed by becoming Senate president at the start of 1963. Now, Marco's meteoric rise within Filipino politics ran in concert with growing political power and influence, which brought with it a lot of backroom dealing and with it a fact of life in Filipino politics in the 1950s and 1960s, corruption. So as bad as things were here in the U.S., in the Cold War years in the Philippines, it's as certain as death and taxes, political corruption at that level. Absolutely. So fueled by American aid money, it was the greasing of palms that got things done, and this palm greasing started to fill the Marcos family accounts better than Ferdinand's Senate salary ever could. As his power grew, he had a hand in more and more of the mechanisms of state, and this meant more and more ways to skim small amounts of money at a time into his own pockets. Now, in 1965, Ferdinand made the decision to run for president of the Philippines. He ran on a populist message, claiming that he was the most decorated soldier from the Philippine forces in World War II claiming 27 different medals, including the Distinguished Service Cross and the Medal of Honor. And he had, in real life, received five relatively minor decorations. I mean, which aren't to be sneezed at. It means you did your job and you served with honor. But, yeah, there's a gulf of difference between that and the DSC. Yeah. So Imelda was going to be a crucial part of this campaign, as the spouses of candidates so often are. But Ferdinand's campaign managers advised her to play up her humble background and to dress simply. Avoiding ostentation so as to appeal to poorer voters. Imelda immediately popped up both middle fingers and told them all to go suck it, and she was going to do things her way. She spent tens of thousands of dollars on new clothes and jewelry for the campaign and attended every campaign appearance in the finest stuff she could muster, appropriating campaign funds to hire professional hairdressers and makeup artists so she could look her best no matter where she went. She, in... For... The entirety of her life, and to this day, she says the same thing, and that it was her, like, her looks, her lifestyle, like, that meant more to the Filipino poor than anything else. I still don't, and we'll get into this later, but I still don't, I, I don't get 
the attraction to Marcos, but it's there. It's there. Well, I it's mean, there. in Leyte, there are still like yeah. actual shrines. Like, well, there's, there's not just like photos of her and yeah. things. Like, there are shrines with candles burning. Right. Well, it makes, I mean, it's it seems that there's this universal thing of why do people who don't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of feel that these people of intense privilege best represent them? And why do people of privilege think that that's the best way to represent them? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Like, here's a question. Why the fuck would you think that, Imelda? Exactly. <laughs> but it worked. Her reasoning, and it's this is a quote. This is a quote from her. It was that the poor always look for a star in the dark of night. Yeah. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> what the fuck does that mean? That, that means that, I get oh, to be opulent. That means, that means I think very highly <laughs> yeah, of myself it, is what that means. What it means is that they don't have electricity. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, she now yeah, Melba took a or some, a roof. Well, yeah, and Imelda, took some, <laughs> Imelda took some flack for this, but she did push back, saying that she was merely an admirer of beauty, that beauty was God's love embodied. I mean, she would really turn on the religion she, when she talks she about beauty. She believes all this shit, too. That's Well, yeah, that's the thing, is she does believe her own bullshit. But mm. she was saying, uh, but she summed up well what she was, uh, summed up everything pretty well when she said to a journalist during the campaign that, quote, it is shallow people who think beauty is frivolous or excessive. If you are bringing beauty and God, you are enriching the country. Rice feeds the body, books feed the mind, beauty feeds the soul. It is the one thing I can really be proud of and to stand tall with in the world. That's kind of revealing of all that. My... Do you remember the last series we did where there were a bunch of people standing over their own feces and just smelling it? <laughs> Shades of that. It this is, is that. <laughs> <laughs> this is, yeah, this is truly masturbatory. So, whenever the flaws in her methodology, uh, whatever the flaws in her methodology, it worked. Marcos was elected as president by a pretty hefty margin, and Imelda was now the first lady of the Philippines. Now, this position came with a pretty uh, lavish lifestyle, but it wasn't going to be enough. However, the new position presented a golden opportunity. In the Filipino political system, there is a great deal more investment in executive authority uh, than there is in the American system, or there is supposed to be in the American system, at least. And this allows for a greater exerting of control by the president over economic decision-making. Uh, instead of their position as head of state and his spouse reigning, uh, reigning their acquisition of wealth in through less than honorable means because of their national exposure, Ferdinand Marcos's new position allowed both of them to really turn on the jets. So when Ferdinand was, uh, so while Ferdinand was the one making the political decisions, it was said that the one really holding the reins on their efforts to hoard more money for themselves was Imelda. Not only through her constant desire for more and more expensive things, but also because she was smarter than a lot of people gave her credit for. I believe. She picked up on things quickly, and she was pretty good at working these efforts into government procedure to hide them. Ferdinand was a greedy man, but if he didn't have a Melda in the driver's seat on this, he would not have succeeded in stealing as much as he did. Now, in America, the Johnson administration was seeking more help on the ground in Vietnam, and reports that they state that a $25 million direct payment to the Filipino government in 1966 the same year that the Marcos's, uh, Marcos government committed three battalions worth of troops to operations in South Vietnam, uh, there's no record of the receipt of this payment on the ends of the Filipino government, meaning that it's likely that this money was funneled in its entirety directly to the bank accounts of the Marcos family. So, unrest was... Uh, in, the in the later part of the 1960s, unrest started to grow in many parts of the Philippines, including the launching of the Moro insurgency, which has been ongoing since 1968, Communist agitators were beginning to make their presence known in the Philippines, being sponsored by the Soviets, China, North Korea, and Vietnam in an order to undermine the support system for America in the Vietnam War. 
these groups were secretly training uh, guerrillas in the Philippine wilderness and were working to spread the message among the poorer sections of Filipino society. Acts of violence, including shootings, beatings, robberies, and bombings, began to tick up. Now, in 1969, Ferdinand won a second term, having spent $50 million on his campaign and projects meant to reinforce it, about half of which went directly back into his own pocket. Wasn't that about the time that uh, Amelda was walking around in poor neighborhoods handing children $100, $100 bills and still? Yep. So, so that they would love her. Yeah. You know she still does that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So his second term, which is meant to be his last, according to the Filipino Constitution, was kicked off by a massive economic overhaul. And what the center of this overhaul was the greed of the Marcos family. Controls on the Filipino peso were relaxed, which immediately led to a jump in inflation, and the regime began taking out billions of dollars in foreign loans. And uh, they, they say as little as 10% of this money actually ended up being pumped into the Filipino economy. That is a 90% wastage on corruption. That is incredible. Even by, like, other standards. Yeah. Right. Like, that, that's like Al Capone. Yeah. Yeah, that ain't... Well, good. Goodwill ain't much better, though. Yeah. Right. So by the beginning of the 1970s, the Marcos money machine was in full swing. The scale of payments was beginning to increase from the hundreds of thousands of dollars to the millions of dollars at a time in a variety of ways that the Marcoses were figuring out how to do with a plum. Claiming that the large private uh, that a large private company was corrupt or failing in issuing a government takeover, uh, making sure that the profits were paid directly into their accounts, they would create state-owned monopolies. They would create false provisions or appropriations on spending bills so as to skim money from tax revenues and aid packages, and laundering the money through a series of shell corporations and stashing in accounts all over the world, or purchasing assets like jewelry, paintings, jets, or just plain old bars of gold. So, Pampers. Well, that'll come up later. eventually. Yeah. So now that Imelda had the money to acquire it, she was at the cutting edge of fashion, buying gowns, bags, and shoes that you or I would look at the price tag and become sick to our stomachs. Now, it didn't really matter to her that the Filipino people were dealing with serious economic fallout, and that poverty levels were rapidly climbing, and that she was running around flaunting wealth in excess. She was sheltered from the lion's share of people's discontent, and her attitude about showing off such wealth when surrounded by grinding poverty. And her attitude was one that satisfied a mix of willful ignorance and self-importance. Um, There's an awful lot of self-importance. She would claim that, quote, One should never dress down for the poor. They won't respect you for it. They want their first lady to look like a million dollars. And as you said earlier, Chris, that Filipinos want and deserve beauty from me. I have to look beautiful so that they have a star to look at from their slums. With their wealth stream secured, the next step for the Marcos regime was to step up the violence and oppression against their own people. And much like stashing away ill-gotten gains, they would become very good at this. But we'll talk about that after we take a short break. Life is too short for bad cocktails. A good party can be a great party with a signature drink and the right bartender making it. From happy hour to reunion or an intimate dinner to a lavish wedding, the Last Word Cocktail Company can provide everything you need to make your next event an experience that your guests will never forget. The Last Word offers in-person and virtual cocktail classes for both groups and individuals to up your game and teach you the techniques to make the perfect libation. You can learn the art of the Manhattan, the elegance of the martini, and any of the classics from pre-prohibition to modern. When you throw a party, why throw a bad party? And when it comes to cocktails, don't just have a say. Have the last word. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Last Word PGH for more information. Welcome back. So now we are to the point where the Marcoses are at the height of the high life. 
They are. They're bigger than Jesus. <laughs> and, and what do we, what exactly yeah. do we mean by the height? Well, they're they're well, their their life is now one of uh, hugely expensive international junkets, ridiculous purchases. We're getting really into Pablo Escobar territory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there was a point where uh, if we're telling stories, yeah, uh, Sotheby's was going to have an auction of five million dollars worth of antiquities and art and things like that and remember five million dollars in the late 1960s a lot different than it is now yeah about 15 million today. 50 million or 50 years later yeah so Amelda decides she wants that she calls up yeah. Sotheby's I can't remember what they were selling at that auction I, it was probably art she it was, was buying a lot art. of art was, at this point it was mostly art I mean she had the art collection was Unbelievable, huge she original did. originals from everyone, like from Michelangelo to Picasso to yeah. like Renoir, like um, an amazing art collection. It was like the goddamn Louvre. Yeah, she calls up the premier auction uh, auctioneers in the world to this day, <laughs> and says, "I want that." Cancel the auction. Cancel the auction. And they did. <laughs> well, there's another story too about uh, they were on a junket to Rome. I know this is one of your favorites. This Chris. is this is my personal favorite, even better than kidnapping the Beatles. But they kidnapped the <laughs> fucking Beatles. We'll, we'll come back to Chris's story first, then we'll get around to them kidnapping the Beatles. So this is whenever she was still buying uh, art, and as it turns out, probably shoes mm-hmm. uh, in Rome. <laughs> and whenever the, the plane takes off, and there uh, it was over Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. They were yeah. over the Arabian she goes, Peninsula. Oh shit! I forgot to buy cheese. Turn the plane around, and they were like, and the pilots were like, "What?" what? They're like, no, no, no! Turn the plane around. I got to go get some cheese. Yeah. So they turn the plane around, <laughs> go back to Rome, so she can buy cheese. cheese. Like she has to buy the cheese. I'm pretty sure she could get cheese from Rome and doesn't have to go and get it. Yeah. But nope. She's. I mean, she's she's out there spending some money, man. <laughs> she's the she's the star in the dark of the night. And then there's the story about the Beatles. Okay. In 1966, 1967, <laughs> yeah. one of the, the height of the Beatles era, they've toured Germany, they've toured Japan, they show up in the Philippines. Well, apparently, was it the day after that they got there? I, well, she announced that the Beatles would be playing a private show at their house. <laughs> Which, unbeknownst to the Beatles, so John Paul, so, so John Paul, George, and Ringo, they're sitting in, in Manila and then hanging out, <laughs> writing songs about an octopus. Yes, well, that's what you do when you're on LSD in the Philippines, um, or so I've heard. Um, <laughs> and Fucking they hell, have John, no clue. I just saw an island with a bunch of giraffes. <laughs> they have no clue that they have inadvertently stiffed the president and first lady of the Philippines by not showing up on the right day. So they are greeted by mobs. The Marcos did the Marcoses put the mob out there. Oh yeah, no, they set them they set upon the press the upon the biggest band in the world at right. this time. Right. They were bigger than Jesus. <laughs> and they've got to get to the airport. <laughs> Here's the problem. They needed a military escort. Yeah. And they got it. But the military escort took them right was back to the, loyal took them to the Marcos. Right back to the presidential palace. <laughs> and they, they still didn't play. No, they yeah. had to flee the country and they had to leave all their stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
they, <laughs> yeah, they had to they had to abandon all their stuff and just yeah. flee the country. <laughs> well, we mentioned giraffes too. I believe they bought a, an island. Yes. And just turned it into but, their no, private But they zoo. didn't. But they didn't buy an island. They didn't. They already like owned the island. Right. There were, well, yeah, there that's were true. almost three hundred families living on the island. Like, hey, guess what? You don't live here anymore yeah, because she's everybody. been to Africa and she liked to go on safari and she would like to go on safari in her own backyard. Yes. <laughs> so they got lions and giraffes, elephants, and everything. Right. They, they they were all from Kenya, and yeah. it was through very hefty bribes yeah. that, because Kenya does not export wildlife. But the thing is, is Except, those families. <laughs> Except when there's a little bit of grass right. going on. And the families that you mentioned, they were told to leave the island. They couldn't afford to. Yeah. So now, here we are. Well, not, not all later. of them. There were quite a few <clears throat> that did. but And people are, are, to this day, trying to return to Kaloui. That's called. It's the nature preserve. And 50 years later, there's a bunch of people stuck on this island with now inbred and feral lions, giraffes, and elephants. <laughs> yeah, they're that's, like trampling all the crops that they're trying yeah, to build, yeah. and like these are like hyper inbred animals. Yeah. And at, at this point, I never want to hear Texans bitching about feral hogs again. But yeah. but he but why was the island abandoned? She just decided she didn't want to go on safari anymore. Yeah, so they was, just didn't she was fund over it anymore. Yeah, they quit funding it. it. Yeah. They just, so they simply didn't fund it. So there's all of these animals <laughs> with zero veterinary care. Nothing. Roaming. And now people are trying to move back, and they just can't. can't. It's insane. Because she just simply lost interest. Well, yeah. and what do you do with the animals even if you do have veterinary care? It's it, 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 you, you have to put them down. You can't take them back to Africa now that they send up a bunch of gorked up lions to mate with other lions. <laughs> I mean, you're going to end up with Alabama lions. <laughs> so, or the Crimson yeah. Tide. I mean, they are <laughs> oh, elephants. No. So. Wait, this is the time whenever Emel Diffic yes. became, it became the, it was synonymous with something that was tacky. Yeah, yeah. tacky, ostentatious, mm-hmm. and ridiculous. Yeah, and this is whenever we were talking earlier, now we're going to start talking about their exploits in New York because and, she just wanted to hang out with Andy Warhol. Yep. And imagine how much he hated that. Yes. Well, the, <laughs> And, and, and Chris claims it's apocryphal, but there is a story that says that she tried to buy the Empire State Building, but turned it down because it was too ostentatious. Now, I, I don't, I cannot refute this story, but I don't see her saying that something is too ostentatious. Yeah, I feel like she just lied makes me about feel it. Like that. That's is there a line? That's the question. <sighs> Is there her, a line with the Marcoses? I don't think I there don't is. Th- and they, like I said, on Billionaires Row, they own multiple yeah. large pieces of real estate. Yeah. What was right. the one? The one was what'd you say? Forty-two stories. Forty-two stories. Holy shit! <laughs> Forty-two <laughs> stories. Hundred and five million dollars. That building was worth at the time at the of time. purchase. Right. So, uh, picking back up with the story, as the nineteen seventies dawned. Discontent was growing in the Philippines as the poverty rate continued uh, be, continued to severely rise and income disparity became greater and greater and greater. Now, uh, despite aid packages still flowing into the U.S. to the tune of $250 million a year by 1972. Now, for the first time, the Marcos regime really felt like their power was under threat as the opposition began to grow more vocal and more radical. Now, at Imelda's urging... In 1971, Ferdinand issued a proclamation granting the president additional emergency powers and suspending the writ of habeas corpus, which set off a brutal campaign of suppression against members of the opposition who were arrested, jailed without trial, tortured, in some cases executed, 
and uh, in many cases simply disappeared in that good old Pinochet style. I have the numbers on that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, whenever they started, after he enacted martial law, uh, the first thing they did was strip democratic rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, they shut down all but one newspaper. Yep. I don't know how many there were, but probably quite a few. Yeah. Like, right. um, there was one newspaper, 70,000 incarcerations, 35,000 people were publicly tortured. Publicly. And 3,500 were publicly executed. Cuted. And after you were publicly executed, they just left you where you were dead. Yep. Right. As a warning. Yeah. Yeah. So later in 1971, a constitutional convention was declared to be held the next year, prompting a reorganization of the Filipino government. And what the Marcoses, particularly Imelda, pushed for most was the repeal of the two-term president, uh, presidential limit. Now, the convention, however, took a major blow when it was revealed that Imelda had been running a payola scheme, uh, bribing delegates to vote in favor of the changes that she and Ferdinand wanted, particularly that which would keep her as first lady. Uh, realizing that they were likely to be removed from their position by these term limits, uh, but not willing to relinquish power, Imelda put a little thought into her husband's head. They had the opportunity, with civil unrest growing, evidence of Marxist movements in the country plotting the overthrow of the Marcos regime, and a series of bombs have been set off in Manila over the course of 1972. Um, one provision, brought about simply through executive order, thanks to the new application of emergency powers, could keep them in power, and on September 23rd, 1972, as you said, Chris, Ferdinand Marcos with Imelda at his side in a $10,000 dress and wearing a necklace with a 54-carat diamond hanging from it. Mm-hmm. It was a pink diamond Yeah, that she bought in Rome, of all places. Signed Proclamation Number 1081, declaring martial law throughout the entire country. Congressional procedure was suspended. Freedom of the press was rescinded. Journalists became a target of suppression efforts as well as opposition figures. And uh, pres- the presidential uh, term limits were removed from the Constitution by Marcos's executive order. So now uh, he just signed into law being yeah. president for life. And the Philippines is now officially a dictatorship. Now the Marcos began uh, spinning the imposition of martial law as part of the Bagong Lipunan, or the New Society. Massive propaganda efforts were instituted to support this effort and sell it to the people, including the creation of a youth organization to promote the new ideology. And uh, teenagers were intended to uh, were encouraged to attend camps that had them doing hard volunteer labor while receiving indoctrination common to a lot of authoritarian regimes. Uh, A referendum was called in early 1973 on the martial law decree, but voting uh, percentages were minuscule, and the continuance was approved with a claimed 90.88% of the vote cast uh, in favor of continuance of martial law in what is probably one of the biggest cases of voter fraud ever brought about. There is no voter fraud. That only happens in Arizona. (laughs) Yeah. In Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Georgia. Are they claiming you know, all fifty states now? Um, California, California, and their yeah, see, they, snap election. Yeah, see that wouldn't have happened in the Philippines if they had the stop the steal rallies. <laughs> They're just waiting for JFK to come back. <laughs> <laughs> see if JFK had been there. They need their own forces. Now was this total landscaping. <laughs> now was this before or after he made the propaganda movie? Hmm. The, the propaganda movie was, uh, I believe, 1973. That was okay. sort of, uh, I've declared martial law, but here's why. That was sort okay. of the, that was sort of the, with uh, the what's big it, Dobie, of, Dobie Evans, is that the name? Dobie, oh my goodness, it wasn't Evans. It's an American, she was an American actor. Yeah, correct. Actress. It was Dobie, oh my goodness. Well, so I'll, you look it up, I'll continue. So, yeah, this set off the darkest period of modern Philippine history, and quality of life for the average Filipino continued to plummet. 
food rationing was imposed, and even that began Dovey to fail. Beams. Dovey Beams. Dovey Thank Beams. Thank you. And even that Beams. began to fail eventually, and starvation began to set in. And the measures to suppress dissent became more brutal by the day. As you mentioned, Chris, you gave some details. People being publicly executed, and they would just leave you. Mm-hmm. So, however, this was the 1970s, and international news coverage was getting better and better. Those watching in America were curious as to what was going on, but nobody saw the need to intervene. In fact, the U.S. government was going out of its way to maintain good relationships with the Marcos regime and kept up ever-increasing aid payments because, hey, they were anti-communists. Now, what all... This is this is this is such typical American. Nothing happens unless it happens here. I mean, we were talking about the the, the solar eclipse here a few years yeah. ago. Yep. There's four solar total solar <laughs> eclipses a year across the world, but this one was going to be the world's end because it was going over Kentucky. <laughs> Man, we're going to show up there and be worshipped as gods. <laughs> this is also why Ferdinand Marcos had refused to leave. It's why yeah. why his first lady was the elder statesperson at the time, because he was afraid he was going to get whacked. And, right. as it turns out, uh, when the cat's away, the mouse will play. Yeah. Well, he was... Technically, so he, was, he was getting whacked. Yeah, so he, yeah, <laughs> so he, was, he was quite the philanderer. Yeah, he had at least one illegitimate child. Mm-hmm. Uh, Reports range from 1 to 11. Yes. (laughs) That's a difference. Yeah. One's an oopsie. 11 is a trend. (laughs) So what also happened over the martial law years was Imelda becoming an international media darling. Now, her glamorous dress and ostentatious manner garnered her a lot of attention, and journalists the world over were falling all over themselves to interview her. Some of the more confrontational journalists did confront her about her family's obvious staggering wealth in a country where the people were so poor and the salary of the president was supposed to be far more modest than what was being displayed. $13,900 per year. Yeah. And this high. is at the time whenever Filipinos were making about $2 a day. Yep. Right. Now, Imelda began to spin the narrative in one particular way, relying on the semi-folkloric story of a vast wartime treasure known as Yamashita's Gold. <laughs> this is so fucking stupid. <laughs> This you is our. This, this is, is the not, emperor's not wearing any clothes. Yeah. This, this is not apocryphal because you cannot make this shit up. <laughs> yeah. this, now, the, now the story of Yamashita's gold alleges that more than six thousand tons of gold bullion, looted by the Japanese from their various conquests across the Asia Pacific region, have been transported to the Philippines for safekeeping, and they have been stashed in a series of tunnels and vaults around the country by General Tomiyuki Yamashita, commander of the Japanese garrison forces. This part I can believe. 6,000 tons, I'm not sure, but the stashing of valuable goods, I can believe that. But the stashing of valuable goods happens all the time, no matter what. all the time. All the time, and it's happened in pretty much every conflict. I Mm -hmm. mean, especially in all the ones we talked about. Well, look at all the art they found at the bottom of uh, the basement of Hitler's eagle's nest. Yep. So, Marcos had some of it. She bought some of it. (laughs) She bought it. (laughs) I mean, she was a history buff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, she, so is that guy like, at the air show selling the flags and the memorabilia oh, that really should not be sold. She was the Iron and, Butterfly, well, damn it. Well, and her her thing was, is, uh, look, you know, the, the British Museum does this all the time. Why, yeah. am I, why am I the bad guy? And to that end, she's not wrong. Yeah. Oh, if she could have bought the Benny and Bronzes, she absolutely would have. So what Imelda began to claim was that her family... Uh, was so wealthy not because they had found out a way of collecting money through dishonest means, but because that uh, because that her husband in the post-war period had been working as a lawyer for a mining company and had been engaged as lawyers so often are in geological exploration, and had and as such had managed to find some of these fabled vaults, but in the interest of national security, couldn't reveal where the rest of them may be. 
The Marcos's wealth came from their portion of Yamashita's gold, not theft. <laughs> now, this soon became part of the official... This is what's weird. It became part of the official government narrative, uh, much like Ferdinand's supposed wartime decorations. He wasn't a kleptocrat because instead, he had once been a Filipino Indiana Jones. <laughs> So by the end of the 19... 19- okay, okay. They're, okay, they're going to they're, they're gonna come up with this graph. They're, they're, they're going to figure this corruption out. What do I do? What the fuck do we do? Buried fucking treasure. I got treasure. She said, what was her official story? She wanted to, like, the room didn't have enough flow or something like that. She wanted the room to be bigger. Yeah, she was going to, like, knock down. She was doing this herself. personally knocking down a wall. Alone. Completely alone. Yeah. Decides to take down a wall and finds a wall full of gold. <laughs> Not just gold. Let's go back to alchemy. Gold buried, uh, coated in lead to be hidden. Oh, Jesus yeah. Christ. <laughs> I so, didn't know that part. <laughs> so by the end, Secret gold. Wizard so, money. So Wizard not only money. did she find these giant bricks of lead, she's like, well, I better scratch these. If Ferdinand didn't know anything about them, she'd have freaking brought up Gandalf. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a white wizard. <laughs> it, was that, it was either that or beanstalk beans. Bring me a sapphire. <laughs> so by the end of the 1970s, millions were turning into billions. The Marcos family was sitting atop the perfect storm of theft, oppression, and spin. And she made one particular statement that really laid out how much they gained. Quote, if you know how rich you are, you're not rich. But me, I am not aware of the extent of my wealth. That's how rich we are. And she said this publicly. <laughs> well, she, again, well, that's her plausible deniability portion yeah, of this whole but, thing, I guess. To be fair, she, she probably didn't know. She probably wasn't wrong. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, all she did was like, I would like to have this, and then just had that. Yeah. Right. Did you ever watch the video of Michael Jackson buying vases? <laughs> like these Ming vases? He's walking around through this warehouse, yeah. and he goes, I want that one, I want, I want that, that one, one, I want that. He ends up buying like 18 of these vases to the tune of like $15 million just because he could. Right. And like, did Michael Jackson know how much money he had? I guarantee he didn't. Nope. No. But you know what he really wanted at the time? A bunch of vases. Well, and little boys. <laughs> well, <laughs> he had a menagerie too. And, like, whenever you yeah. have menagerie money, like, it's true that. Yeah. When you got private zoo money, <laughs> you got some. You got some dosh. A private. I, uh, hey, the, not even a zoo. A fucking safari. Yeah. <laughs> so well, I gotta admit, if I had that much money, I'd probably be hanging out with a monkey. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be honest. Wouldn't we all? Really. So you gotta, I mean, he was living the dream. you got to call 911 and just I, tell him to show up and shoot it. <laughs> oh, God. So nepotism wasn't absent from the equation either. By 1980, both Ime and Bong Bong held significant public offices. I can't laugh, say it and not laugh. Who's your boss? Bong Bong. Bong Bong. <laughs> <laughs> held significant public offices. Um, Ime was a congresswoman and leader of the youth wing of her father's political party. And Bong Bong was lieutenant governor of their home province, both of them younger than 25. Hey, we got lieutenant and governor Go- Bong Bong. Bong Bong. We got one of those, too. Yeah, he's, he's running for Senate now. Yeah. Oh, God. So Ime was even tried and convicted for the 1977 torture and murder of a journalist named Archimedes Trajano, who had been pursuing her about corrupt practices within the organization she led, and he was last seen being bundled into a car by her security team before being found later having been beaten to death. Uh, it should say out of the, the three and a half thousand that were murdered, and it, it's murder, like they, yeah. they were yeah. murdered, um, most of them were journalists. Yeah. It was journalists and professors, yeah. by and large. Shades of Cambodia and the mm-hmm. 
under Pol Pot. Yeah, like I was going to say, that Pol Pot did that. He, that's exactly what he did. Going after the intellectual class. Yep. Well, and that's the ones well, that were publicly executed. Right. How many people were just disappeared? Yeah. And the Philippines has a lot of places to disappear people. Right. This is a typical um, authoritarian thing. Yeah. I mean, the Soviets did it. The, you know, the Sino, every, every authoritarian government you know, in the world the has. The Sino-communism did it in, yeah. in, in, in China. They, the first thing they do is they kill the intelligence. Cambodians, the Chileans, uh, everybody. everybody. Yeah. So now, technically, this conviction still technically stands, but she never served a day in prison and has never been disqualified from any office holding since as a result. Uh, in 1981, the martial law was officially lifted by presidential proclamation, but Fernando Marcos uh, held on to almost all powers granted to him by his Emergency Powers Act, and frankly, little changed. A presidential election was held in June of 1981, but since all major opposition parties were boycotting the election, uh, Marcos won by a landslide, granting his official third term, now the term limits had been removed. The activities of the Marcos security forces continued. Those who spoke out continued to die and disappear. The economy took another major blow in concert with the recession in the U.S. in the early 80s, and the Philippines' credit rating dropped further, but the flow of money coming into the Marcos' coffers had never been bigger. Now, in 1983, the main leader of the opposition movement, Benigno Aquino Jr., was granted safe passage to return to the Philippines after years of exile in the U.S., and on the day he landed at Manila International Airport, he was shot to death on the tarmac. What? There was a connection between the two, and I don't recall it. Didn't they Didn't they date? Imelda Marcos and Benigno Aquino? Weren't they, like, weren't they an item at some point? No. No. I don't think there so. Was, there's a weird connection there. I don't recall because she paid for him to go to the States because he, so, he, he had a heart issue. And then whenever yeah. he came back, they were like, well, he Benito, just stayed. They were ben, like, go, and then you can come back. And so he just stayed for 20 years. Benino Aquino's dad had a lot of connections with mm-hmm. Fernando Marcos's dad. Okay. I, I knew there was there was one thing with Imelda. And I remembered yeah. like watching it in the news. Right. There, there may have been other connections, too, because it's the political class within the Philippines. There's a lot right. of interweaving. So, yeah, you're not you're not getting off an island out of a shanty town and making it Manila right without knowing some people. Right. Yeah. So it appeared that the main driver behind the assassination was not Ferdinand, but Imelda. She was realizing that her husband was older and that his health was starting to not look so great, and she had ambitions of her own to assume his office should he die and needed to get Aquino out of the way. She was eventually indicted with several others, including a cabal of army officers, but she never went to trial the indictment being dropped for lack of sufficient evidence. Now, by the middle of the 1980s, the Marcos family was at the height of their excesses. The wedding of youngest daughter Irena to a wealthy financier was thrown at the cost of $10.3 million, and none of this money came out of the Marcos' family's accounts. All of it was paid for by the state. The family owned hundreds of properties worldwide, from condos in San Francisco to a mansion in Rome, to, as we mentioned before, an entire 42-story building in Manhattan on Billionaire's Row. They owned dozens of airplanes from Little Cessnas all the way up through a luxuriously appointed personal DC-10 airliner. Uh, made frequent trips to Rome and then back to Rome. Well, no, those were no, those were made on those were made on government jets. Okay, this was just a bonus, <laughs> right? And uh, yeah, DC-10 is normally meant to carry up to 350 passengers to give you an idea of the size of it. Uh, they owned dozens of massively expensive cars and untold amounts of jewelry, watches, clothing, and art. All of it had been paid for by money stolen from the Filipino government, and it's estimated that by the end of 1985, Fernando and Imelda Marcos had stolen somewhere between 5 and $10 billion away from the Philippines government, although some recent findings have shown that this estimate may be too low, and the true number may be somewhere in the 20 to $30 billion range, up, which is up to $44 
billion dollars in 2021 bucks. It just it wow. makes it so incredibly difficult to track how much they embezzled because of how they they had all the control. They made they wrote the books. Yeah. So we'll never know. Yeah, we won't. I mean, she admittedly never knew herself, and it was her money. Yeah. Right. They're programs of systemic violence. Well, it was it was the Filipinos' money. Uh, yeah, it was. It, well, was, it was someone. She was, using, oh, yeah. she was just holding on to it for yeah. them, just so that she could be their their light Star in the dark. In the darkness, their, yeah. the dark night, the the hero they deserve. Now, in addition to all the, <laughs> now, now, in addition to all the numbers that Chris mentioned earlier of three thousand two hundred odd people being publicly executed, not to mention the tens of thousands of people who were disappeared, it's estimated that as many as a million people had died as a result of the crushing poverty and starvation that resulted from the Marcos' regime's policies. Finally, the people had had enough, and the tipping point soon came. Now, throughout the mid-80s, discontent had been growing to a fever pitch in Manila and all throughout the country. Mass protests and riots were taking place, calling for reforms and more financial and food security. In August of 85, a large part of the Congress proceeded with an impeachment vote against Marcos that was just barely defeated, even with the help of significant bribery. Uh, news articles had been published all over the world alleging the scale of the Marcos's theft from their own people, and even the U.S. government had significantly pulled back from its vocal support of the regime. Under pressure from his own government and from some of the Philippines' biggest trade partners and aid providers, Marcos called a snap election in November of 1985, a year before the next presidential election was scheduled to occur. Now, this election would be held on the 7th of February the next year, and the two main candidates would be Ferdinand Marcos and the American-educated Corazon Aquino the widow of the assassinated opposition leader. Now, Aquino was backed by a growing uh, public opposition movement to the Marcos government, which had coalesced into a widespread movement called the People Power Revolution. Now, to support her husband, Imelda went into campaigning overdrive, the focus of her efforts being to counteract the reports of corruption and ill-gotten wealth within her family and trying to spread the message that they were merely the humble servants of the Filipino people which is hard to do when you're wearing half a million fucking dollars worth of jewelry. <laughs> and you have a 54 karat pink diamond around right. your neck, and you're handing hundred dollar bills, hundred dollar American USD, yes. hundred dollar bills out. Um, <laughs> her, have you ever seen her biggest necklace? It's not a diamond; it's a ruby. So it's not quite as valuable. Per with carat. all the pearls, yeah, with all the right. pearls on it, two hundred and forty-five carats. That's the size of a fist. It's monstrous. Yeah. She had a thing for pearls. Everything was pearls with her. I yeah. don't know why. Well, pearls. The Philippines has creates quite a lot of pearls. Yeah, but she I mean, like she definitely, necklace. she definitely like Americanized her. Yeah. Well, I mean, not even Americanized because, like, I mean, she was big into French and Italian fashion. That's why mm -hmm. she spent all of her time there. Yeah. So when the election Whenever was, she wasn't just like. Yeah barging into the White House all the time. <laughs> oh, she did, a lot. All the time. She used to just show well, up. Well, Henry she, Kissinger was like her nemesis. <laughs> he said... <laughs> he was just trying to get shit done, and she expected this this red carpet treatment. Still showing up to see Uncle Gipper for was, some jelly beans. She said he was... He said she was more of a pest than a guest. She was yeah. more of a pest than, than a, a guest. guest. This is not a productive area of conversation. I think my favorite part of that was when she shows up and she gets mad because... Nobody, the State Department didn't know she was in the country. Yeah. She shows up at the White House, and she's pissed because she has to sit at the gate. But Betty Ford let her in, had tea with her. Right, come on in. They, the, the press shows up because here's the First Lady of the Philippines having tea with Betty Ford. She gets angry because Gerald didn't show up right away. Yeah. Gerald finally comes Imagine in. How little They're making would have nice, enjoyed. nice in front of the cameras. Uh, one of America's greatest falling down presidents. They, they 
the Fords present her a gift. And Holy she's fuck, so, what was it? She's nobody knows. <laughs> but she was presented with a gift. And she was so insulted by the size of the gift that she left it there on the way out. <laughs> well, I and I mean, know. here's the whole thing. I mean, do they have? Does, does, does the White House have a fucking closet? They do. And I just of, found like, this okay, out. people just show up and here. We, oh yeah, hey, that's a White House snow globe. Let's. <laughs> no, and it's and I just found this out, and I I thought it was hilarious because people were just incensed that all these like outgoing Trump officials were taking all of, like the gifts for dignitaries. But they were like all these like golden like coffee mugs and brand like that said Trump all over. That's hilarious to steal. Yeah, that's that's incredibly funny. funny to steal. Like I don't care what side of the inside of the aisle you're on. Like that's very steal all the gifts from dignitaries funny. that are just like sitting in a room. That's right. fucking hilarious. Yeah. So when the election was so when the election oh, was Jesus Christ, they gave her a fucking snow globe. What do you think? Like realistically, what do you think they gave? Her? I, a music, but like one of the ornaments they sell over here. Yeah, like, what if it was just like office Coffee supplies? Cup, like yeah. they didn't have anything. Like here's the stapler. Just the panic. It, it of was her a show. red. Just the panic of her showing up. They're just like grabbing tea towels it, out of. And it, Gerald Ford just refusing to come downstairs. It's a red swing line stapler. Eventually comes back to the United States and a guy burns down a building over it. It was very important. What if it was the nuclear football? <laughs> uh, it's all we got. Oops. Somebody uncuff this guy. So, so when the election was held and the results tabulated, they showed that Marcos had won by one. 6 million votes, but tallies conducted by international election monitoring groups, and they showed up because they knew there was going to be some fuckery, showed that the reverse was true, and that Aquino had won by margins ranging from 5 to 9 points. Now, widespread reports of violence and intimidation of polling places by security forces started to immediately come out, and the capping point was a walkout by 35 computer techs who alleged manipulation of the computer vote tabulation system in favor of Marcos. Now, when Marcos took to the airways to declare his victory... The streets erupted in violent protests, which were violently put down by the Filipino military at the cost of dozens of lives. Now, over the next few weeks, many of Marcos' supporters and insiders would defect over to people power, bringing tales of more corruption and election fraud and the public outcry built to a fever pitch. On the morning of the 25th of February, the inauguration happened. Well, technically, two inaugurations happened. Yeah, they still they still did everything. One for each and they candidate. Had, mm-hmm. They had a great big freaking party at the presidential mansion. Yeah. They, you know, the dances and everything. And I seem to remember a second uh, a second inauguration being threatened back in January of twenty twenty one. Oh too. yeah, and well, then again, it's, it's, and then again. Well, yeah, I was going to say again. that happens every quarter. Yeah, and again, with JFK, and then again. <laughs> Yeah, so um, the massive crowds that turned out in support of Aquino soon went ballistic over Marcos's continued insistence of election victory. Now, within hours, a new wave of violent public unrest had broken out all over the country, and massive crowds overwhelmed the security forces and were soon at the gates of the presidential palace, baying for blood. Ferdinand and Imelda frantically began gathering those close to them around them and packing away as many valuables as they could stash, and at the same time working like hell negotiating with both Aquino and the U.S. State Department to secure safe passage out of the country. Arizona Kino and her team decided that safe passage out for the Marcos clan was the path of least resistance to ending the unrest and granted it. At around 9 p.m. on February 28th or February 25th, 1986, the Marcos family, including extended family members and some close associates, 89 people in all, gathered everything they could carry, including $10,000 in cash apiece, and bundled into four HH3 heavy lift helicopters that had landed on the grounds of Malacanang Palace, then flew to Clark Air Base, where U.S. Air Force C-130s flew them to Hawaii via Guam. 
You may ask yourself, why were four Jolly Greens and two heavy lift cargo aircraft needed to transport only 89 people? Well, let's look at a rundown of some of what Imelda and Ferdinand brought with them. 22 boxes of cash valued at $717 million. That's $1.3 billion adjusted for inflation. 300 crates of assorted jewelry of undetermined value, although likely in the high tens or even possibly into the hundreds of millions. $4 million worth of uncut precious stones carried in Pampers diaper boxes. 65... I, 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 okay. Keep 65 going. Seiko and Cartier watches a 12-by-4-foot box crammed full of real pearls, a 3-foot solid gold statue covered in diamonds, sapphires, and other precious stones, $200,000 in gold bullion, over a million dollars worth of Filipino pesos coins, and deposit slips to banks in the U.S., Switzerland, and the Caymans worth $124 million. Not to mention a a big box of gold bricks. Yep. (laughs) Yep, bunch of gold bars. But the one thing that, and it was mentioned, I believe it was in Kingmaker, is you know she had mentioned before that she found a bunch of secret golden bricks in her wall. Except these ones said, to my husband on our 24th anniversary. anniversary. (laughs) 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 Maybe she got them engraved. I, I don't know. You know all those jewelry store commercials that say, say, for for your anniversary, consider a little bit of gold. This is, you think she heard that and went, oh, I know just what to get. It was like 60, not even bars, because they don't call them bars, which is, it's a universal measure. They just call them bricks. Right. (laughs) Now you were mentioning, Mike? Okay, I'm going to go back to my 35, go back 35 years. I'm 13 years old, and I'm watching this actually happen. Yeah. And they're pulling these boxes and these crates and things off on the tarmac. The Pampers boxes. Yes. Of uncut stones. I just did the math. The one was 58 years old. I don't... I, I know where her, she got the stones. Her grandchildren were on the plane. Were they? Yeah. Because yeah, I'm going, the family got out. Where the hell... Why the hell... That's, that's why they chose di- boxes. Well, they were diapers on top of the stones. Oh, yeah. They, they yeah. were smuggled. But no, because we asked that question. Because we remembered the, the diapers boxes. And right. if, if you just Google it, they, yeah. it's... That you can find it on on news, like yeah. you can see boxes of Pampers, right? And uh, yeah, it was uh, because all because all of the families had left. Uh, I mean, all of the family right. had left, not all of the families, but all of their family left. The grandchildren were there, so ostensibly they should have had diapers. But diaper boxes also don't weigh seventy pounds, right? Yeah. So uh, also was an, an interesting little note. Uh, they almost left Bong Bong behind. <laughs> well, they didn't hey. like him in the first place. They named him freaking Mong Mong. <laughs> stood up and looked in the mirror and did the. Ah! <laughs> well, here's the thing: is they he said he was shaving. Well, no, they didn't know that. I... <laughs> it's less funny when when like Kevin McAllister's 35. Yeah. <laughs> well, they they didn't know that they left him behind until the last chopper, which was fully loaded and ready for takeoff. Up comes Bong Bong wearing very expensive <laughs> fake military fatigues. <laughs> Why do you have to have fake ones? <laughs> I, well, I don't know. They're just, already on the Imagine page. if like right. Bobby's Class B's were made by Prada. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it, but the, mm. now the crew refused to let him on because they didn't know who the fuck he was. <laughs> Well, look at look at you with your camo and Dolce and Cabana buttons. You got, right. got, got these Air Force chopper pilots coming down from Clark Field. 
that are just like, who the fuck's this guy? They didn't let him on until he jumped up onto the landing strut of one of the Jolly Greens and stuck a gold-plated Uzi in the pilot's face. <laughs> gold-plated now, once the party had departed, the security forces at the palace just sort of slunk away and looked at their own survival. And once... <laughs> I love that. Thanks for helping us load all this heavy shit onto the helicopters. Bye! Bye. <laughs> Good luck out there. Yeah. <laughs> so once opposition forces began to filter into the compound, they were astounded and enraged at what they saw. A vast, impossibly richly decorated home that would put J. Paul Getty to shame. They just let him in. Yeah. And I thought, I mean... For, and and it, it's also super wholesome that uh, Corazon went by Corey. Yeah, cool. But Corey, you know, just let him oh, in. Oh, Corey she was, like, was a sweetie. She was a, America's sweetheart, too. She was, a, like, she was fantastic. Yeah. You want to talk about a bad bitch. Like, who, yeah. I mean, look <laughs> look for an episode about her. Yeah. Right. But whenever she was like, no, they need to see this. Maybe we'll do, we'll do her story as a uh, Patreon follow-up. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so hundreds of millions of dollars of art still line the walls because that's a little less portable. And most of it was, like, hastily cut out of the frames and yeah. replaced with family photos. <laughs> so just, like, yeah. empty frames of just, like, a picture of a bong-bong, like, stapled to the wall. <laughs> <laughs> just kissing a gold-plated Uzi. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the... the the in front of his Lamborghini. Yeah. The wall hangings and rugs alone were worth tens of millions of dollars. And vast stocks of expensive food filled the pantries in a country where large parts of the population were starving. And the wine and liquor cellar was insane. Containing, bo- containing 650,000 bottles. Uh, some of which were worth tens of thousands of dollars apiece. But one of the most staggering finds of all was the wardrobe of Imelda Marcos. And by wardrobe, I mean small wing of the building... The jewelry was almost gone, but what remained was simply astounding. Fifteen mink coats and hundreds of other expensive furs. In a country where it doesn't get cold, uh, 508 gowns of dress and dresses, the cheapest of which was retailing at $3,500. Mm-hmm. 888 handbags and roughly 3,000 pairs of shoes. The most expensive pair they found retailing for... Any guesses, boys? I know the answer to this, and it's just like I had to sit down. <laughs> Go for it. I, I, it was the were they the Louboutins? They were like eleven thousand dollars. No, no. Which ones are they? They found a personalized pair. That if you get them personalized, oh no, they have Cartier diamonds on them. Oh, one hundred and thirty. Grand. Oh, so she had the one-offs. Jesus, God in heaven. They were just Yeezys. I do like that in her defense... They were defense, the original Nike Yeezys. In her defense, she said that she only had 1,600 pairs. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <my> 1,600 <laughs> pairs. Oh, and... It was to promote the the growing uh, yeah. fashion. What was it? The, the shoe I, industry. I have the quote here. She would say of her shoe collection, quote, I really had no great love for shoes. I was working. I was a working first lady. I was always in canvas shoes. I did nurture the shoes industry of the Philippines, and so every time there was a shoe fair, I would receive a pair of shoes as a token of gratitude. Yeah, but they they don't make Fendi bags and no. Gucci <laughs> Gucci and Prada and Louboutin. Like almost every shoe gown handbag, they were yeah. French or Italian. Uh, also I, included in the wardrobe was a bulletproof bra, which. Um, <laughs> Which, because when you're the Marcos, is your paranoia about your own people coming to get like you. Like I said, the, the dude didn't leave yeah. the palace for a the, very Yeah, long your paranoia time. goes tit deep. I'm, 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 <laughs> well, that, that's just saying, I'm okay with being shot, just not in a boob. 
Not in a boo, man. Yeah. So um, no, no, the thing I was going to say is I, I recall a news story from, from back in when this was going on. There was a consideration with those shoes of, well, let's just give them to the poor in Manila. <laughs> what the fuck are it, they going to do with these stilettos? <laughs> Cartier yeah. diamonds. Well, that, that was the first question. And the, the second question was, you know, the, they're Cartier-encrusted diamonds. I mean, who are you going to give those to? You give those to one kid, and then you give, you know, the, you give the other one a $10 set of chucks that she wore around the house. She, you she, know? Did, she didn't know $10 sets of chucks. <laughs> yeah, You're talking about our shoe collection. Right. <laughs> right. Well, you see what I'm saying yeah. is that, you know, the, 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 it, it would have actually created like wealth disparity to yeah. just distribute these shoes to the poor. So a large part of the palace was looted and vandalized, <laughs> but much of Imelda's wardrobe was saved mm. because it sat behind so much passive security that it was only the remaining authorities that were able to access it and only with the help of the U.S. military. <laughs> So, yeah, they had to call in the engineering battalion from uh, from one of the army bases from Hickam. in the Philippines. So uh, the, now the party were initially put into housing at Hickam Air Force Base in Hawaii because, frankly, nobody in Washington quite knew what to do with them. Now, eventually, the Marcos family moved into two sumptuous mansions in the Makiki Heights above Honolulu to live the lives of disgraced fallen dictators. Uh, shopping and eating at the most expensive places. As is tradition. Throwing costly parties, um, mostly not even using their own money. And hosting celebrities, wealthy backers, and some of the various great and good of the Reagan administration. Uh, the State Department did announce that they wouldn't block the Marcoses from prosecution, going against the wishes of the Reagan White House. And hundreds of indictments began flying from it, flying in from all over the world to be dealt with in U.S. courts, including racketeering charges be compiled by the U.S. Attorney for New York, one Rudolph Giuliani. In a case involving a web of Saudi oil heiresses, American tobacco giants, and the actor George Hamilton from Godfather Part Three and Ada Hedson to Duffel Bag. <laughs> Somebody got paid for that, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> so in 1987, a plot by Ferdinand to return to the Philippines and overthrow the Aquino government was uncovered by two attorneys posing as arms dealers and was stopped before it got off the ground. And Marcos kept up his pleading with the Reagan administration to withdraw uh, prosecution eligibility, going so far as to threaten to sabotage Vice President George H.W. Bush's 1988 presidential run by disclosing secrets from his time at the CIA. PP tapes. Yeah. Mm. In March of 1980, yeah, compromise basically. In March of yeah, 19- but that would have given us Michael yeah. Dukakis. I don't like that alternative. History. I still don't think Dukakis would have won. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> you mean America's best ever tank riding presidential candidate? Uh, what was worse, Dukakis riding a tank or John Kerry windsurfing out of the election? Mm, I mean, no, that tank. We're that, really gonna we're tank. really gonna put this up against. <laughs> Do you remember when that was enough? Yeah. <laughs> So in March of 1988, Imelda appeared at an American court for the first time to enter a plea of innocence and made a sensation when she showed up to court in a big old fuck-off aqua-colored ball gown worth over $20,000. So for the next several years, when in and out of court, she would always tend to overdress to the point where page six would be talking about who she might wear to her next court appearance. Now, Ferdinand also had to make court appearances, but he started showing up less and less as his health began to rapidly decline. While in the hospital with pneumonia, he was visited by Filipino Vice President Salvador Laurel and offered to return 90% of their ill-gotten wealth to the, Philipp- to the nation if he was allowed to be buried back in the Philippines beside his mother, an offer that was rebuffed by Cory Aquino, but it was first rebuffed by Imelda herself. Mm-hmm. Of, fuck you, like, keeping the money. The hell you are, because yeah. you're yeah. dying first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, no it's... way. Poor Ferdinand died of a heart and... Uh, died of heart and kidney failure. Did you just call him poor? Poor Ferdinand? Like, one, I no, know. fuck I gotta, that guy. Yeah, and two, right. he had $30 got, million. Dollars. 
I got a, I, I, I got a, I got a whole nother line of reason, and I'll call him poor for now. But I, I, yeah. I want, I want to come back around to this. But yeah, he died of heart and kidney failure on September twenty eighth. Killed thirty five hundred people. <laughs> they beat thirty five thousand in the streets. <laughs> fuck that guy and fuck his wife. <laughs> yeah, his body uh, died. Yes, died on September twenty eighth, nineteen eighty nine, in Honolulu. His body was interned at a private mausoleum at a Buddhist temple. Uh, not allowed to be returned to the Philippines until 1993. He was survived by his mistress, Dovey Beams. <laughs> well, but see, this is the thing. This is what I want to come back around to. All right. I assert that this everything that we've just talked about is a grand case of cuckolding. <laughs> okay. Because Are you suggesting that the worst wait. dictatorship in, Asia, in, in Filipino history... Was a long form humiliation scene? No, hang on. Okay. I, yeah. I, I, I think I know what he's up Remember. to here. Dovey yeah. <laughs> Beams comes over. Amelda's out traipsing the world, talking to Saddam Hussein, Gaddafi, you know, all the greats. Uh, and it's, yeah. I mean, like, these are the people that. Yeah, she, yeah, yeah the hit Fidel. And yeah. they were even like, why are you talking to these people? She was like, oh, I met them and they're charming. Yeah. She's like, exactly. well, haven't you, like, you don't know about them? Like, she no. said, I don't, I don't even read about them. Like, they just seem like nice people. Yeah, she she was the iron butterfly, and she yeah. trusted her gut instinct. Like it was Gaddafi. So, <laughs> got a so in the meantime, Ferdinand's at home, and he's got to prop up this martial law thing with a grand film, a propaganda film about all of his actions in in World War II. He brings over Dovey Beams, proceeds to have a two year affair with her, gets her pregnant. It becomes very public because the protesters at the oh, University yeah, of the Philippines <laughs> get a hold of a sex tape. Yep. And they start playing it over national radio. <laughs> Didn't they play it for like a month? Yeah. yeah. And it's it's things like the president begging for a blowjob, followed by <laughs> the president making the guttural sounds of having sex. So... Imelda gets back and she's like, "Dude, I'm going to stay with you on these conditions." This is the Kobe. This is the Kobe four million dollar diamond here, because every once in a while, I'm sure he came in. And he was like, "Woman, we can't be doing this." And she goes, "Still got the tape." Yeah, she just still like got the tape. Just for the radio. <laughs> He's like, "No, no, no, no. Whatever you want, honey." But you just I'm said the guttural you. sounds. And I stopped and I was like, guttural? And then I looked around this table and I just went, yep, guttural. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so in 1991. So I, I say yeah. poor Ferdinand. <laughs> so in 1991, Imelda and the rest of the Marcos family were granted permission to return to the Philippines on the understanding that they would be facing charges in Filipino courts. And on November 4th, Imelda landed in Manila. Within two months of returning, she had announced her candidacy for the 1992 presidential election. Uh, while facing over two dozen separate cases for tax fraud and corruption. She finished fifth out of seven. While none of these cases she faced resulted in prison time, the Marcos estate started to be hit for hundreds of millions of dollars in reparations over the course of the next few years. But compared to what the family still had access to, this amount of money was of little concern. Yeah, I mean, they, they had that just in coins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the boxes of coins onto the helicopter, it's like, this couldn't be bills. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So yeah, but it, even in the face of all of these cases, Imelda's ego and sense of self-importance never dampened. She once said to a British journalist in the 90s, quote, even your own queen is not just called Elizabeth. She's Elizabeth II. There's only one Imelda. 
I'm Imelda the First, and Imelda the Only. And in regards to her multitude of ongoing cases, she only had this to say. I'm so tired of listening to $1 million here, $10 million there. It's all just so petty. The whole time, like, maintaining all innocence regarding, like, fraud or ill-gotten gains. Well, she had kind of a... a million dollars. So what? Big deal. Who doesn't have that? Well, she probably said that because she had kind of a bit with a queen because she showed up at the same place and and Queen Elizabeth tried to upstage her. So in 1995, Imelda was elected to represent... Oh, it was at the Sydney fucking Opera House. Yeah. Yeah. She she showed up. That's right. Nobody knew she was going to show up, but she got irritated because Elizabeth II was there. Yeah, the queen had better seats. Yeah. Yeah. Because you didn't fucking have a seat. You just showed up. And you're not the queen of fucking Great Britain. (laughs) You're not the queen. You're not the queen. You're not not the head of the Commonwealth. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So, in 1995, Imelda Marcos was elected to represent the first district of the island of Leyte in the House of Representatives, despite facing a disqualification lawsuit, ongoing disqualification lawsuit at the uh, Filipino Supreme Court, uh, which was still contained a majority of appointees from the Marcos regime. Uh, and uh, they unsurprisingly ended up ruling in her favor after the election had been decided. Now, after serving one term, she ran for president again in the 1998 election, coming ninth out of 11 candidates. She also ran a short-lived campaign for May of Manila in 2001 uh, and spent most of the 2000s in and out of court for a variety of cases. But in 2010, she ran again for the House of Representatives and won in the 2nd District of Ilocos Norte, Ferdinand's original seat, replacing none other than Bong Bong, who wouldn't just want a seat in the Filipino Senate. She had, uh, she's since been re-elected twice, finally leaving office on June 30th, 2019, eight months after finally conven- being convicted of a crime that could involve a jail sentence, all while running for governor of the province at the age of 89. So two of her kids are office holders in the Philippines today as well. With Ime currently sitting on the Filipino Senate and having served as a provincial governor and in the House of Representatives, and Bong Bong has also been in and out of various government positions, serving in the House, the Senate, and as a governor, although he left government in 2016 and now hosts a news vlog channel on YouTube that has about 1.5 million subscribers. And that's why we have the Young Turks, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> although on October 5th of this year, he officially announced his candidacy for the Filipino presidency in the 2022 election. And see, that's what makes this story all b- better. Yeah. Bong Bong does good. Now, both continually denounced... Well, he couldn't do a yeah. whole lot fucking worse than the guy they have in there now. <laughs> yeah. Like, Jesus Christ. He's <laughs> yeah, so Marcos is bad. Like, Duterte is like, he's yeah, full he's, psychopath. Yeah, yeah, he is. So both or, continu- if you are suspected yeah. of smoking a joint, you are publicly hanged. Hanged. Yeah. <laughs> so both continually denounce the cases against their family and deny the violence, oppressiveness, and greed of their father's regime, claiming their downfall was the result of some vast conspiracy by secret, powerful cabals to undermine a regime that was doing right by the Filipino people. Does this fucking sound familiar? Mm. Also, it turns out, on his news vlog channel, Bong Bong turning into a bit of a Q fan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So on November 9th, 2018, Imelda Marcos was found guilty on seven counts of violating the Anti-Graft and Corrupt Practices Act for the funneling of roughly $200 million from American aid packages to various Swiss foundations all the way back in the 1970s. This could lead to a prison term of 6 to 11 years for each count, with a minimum of 42 years, 7 months, up to a maximum of 77 years. Now, Since 1986, Melda has spent countless hours in courtrooms managing to avoid any jail time through acquittals, appeals, and settlements uh, that involve the surrender of assets, 
or through legal wrangling and obfuscation of procedure at the hands of skilled legal teams or thanks to old loyalties to her family. Now, having been released on bond and currently awaiting the appeal of her guilty verdict, Melda Marcos still lives in a luxuriously appointed penthouse condo in the upscale neighborhood of Makati in Manila and is currently listed as being worth $22 million, the second richest politician in the Philippines, at least officially, behind Manny Pacquiao. <laughs> she is well, now... they both wear fishnets. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> She's now 92 years old. Now, the Marcos legacy is not a mixed one by any means. That would make her a spring chicken yeah. if she was running for office in the States. Yeah. No, I, what <laughs> I was going to young say upstart, about, 92. I say they go, I, I think the Philippine judicial system should go the, the, the way they keep going. They, they're using these deals to get this money back. The woman's 92 years old. Yeah. Who cares if she serves time in prison? If you keep making deals in these appeal systems to get the money back to the Philippine people... You're really doing it justice then. Yeah. Right. And and somehow oh, I, I, I doubt if she goes to jail today, she's going to serve her whole sentence. <laughs> right. She ain't exactly. going to jail yeah. no matter. You're not going to jail anybody that's 92 years old. But yeah. But the Marcos legacy is one based purely around greed, nepotism, and cruelty. And one and it's one that still left its mark on the Philippines to this day and everything from the country's ongoing economic struggles to continued corruption to the emergence of reactionary lunatic shitbirds like Rodrigo Duterte. Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos are still the holders of the record for the largest ever theft from a government in the Guinness Book of World Records. And the sooner that we can refer to Imelda in the past tense, the sooner the process can begin to truly remove the stain of the Marcos name from the Philippines. Hmm. Well, I mean, just... Imelda Marcos spent $2,000 at the San Francisco airport. Does anybody want to guess what she bought? I know this one. 67 pounds of Toblerone? <laughs> Ah, very close. Chewing gum. (laughs) It was only chewing gum. She spent $2,000. In the 80s. Well, in the 80s. Okay, because I was going to say I was... I was Well, now that's... I was in San Francisco Airport. I was going to say now it's half a sandwich and a bottle of water. I was going to say she bought seven packs of gum. Holy shit. And besides that, I'd give give $2,000 to see the Double Mint Twins. (laughs) (laughs) Man, you want to know that? You want to know how I could tell that your prime of youth was in the 90s? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Is that what their OnlyFans cost? Oh, man. Asking Probably. for a friend. So, but like, yeah. and the thing is, like, as much as they were up with, with appearances and how she said that she had to be beautiful and opulent and grand and all this, they did try to play down all the time how wealthy they were, which is super fucking weird. Like, she was listed as one of the 10 richest people in the world, like, one of the 10 richest women. In that circle, in, in a big expose for Cosmopolitan, which she was interviewed with, which she sat down for all the photos for, knew what it was, and did they kill the story? No. They sent government agents out to buy all the copies <laughs> yeah. of Cosmo exactly. in the Philippines to, to bury that story. <laughs> but it was just like, these people are fucking nuts. Yep. What? My question is, is who's more nuts? I mean, this woman did all this stuff, and they reelected her. They elected her initially and then re-elected, re-elected her. Re-elected her. Yeah. And this is after everything. This is after there the are, Pampers boxes. Like I said, buddy, there, there are still right now shrines to her in late Right. Yeah. They love this woman. Yeah, the course of her fortune is fortunes, I should say, irrespective of her actual wealth. It, it's like a fucking sine wave. I mean. It's it, up and down and up and down. It's. 
I mean, when when you see that she's she's back in the House of Representatives, I I couldn't help but think, hey, well, you know what? I took a hit on the money. I got to go back and make some more, you know, because she, given the time and given the, you know, if she had a little bit more time and a little bit more youth, she probably would have been involved in the saving graft and corruption that she would she had been in the late eight. Or in the, I think we asked that question about Gregor McGregor. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like, would he have ever stopped? I mean, he he did it twice. Yeah. Right. It, the only way that they would have ever stopped was going to be the downfall of the of the Marcos regime, either through takeover or through assassination. I mean, it, I'm I'm fairly sure that Ime and old Bong Bong probably weren't involved. Probably haven't been involved in the most ethical practices either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't think that they. They they can't have the same level of graft. They have a spotlight on them, so they can't do it nearly to the extent that, that their and, parents. And they're were not the only ones that. in charge. Yeah. Because right. what did you say about paving roads? They they had you take a you take a road, and this is one of the one of the ways that they did the corruption is a road supposed to be ten inches deep. Well, they take it at they they build the road. They have the engineers build the road at two inches deep, and then they pocket the cash that they were going to spend on the concrete. And the only way you know. Is cut into the road. I'm going to figure out what over. the cost of a mile of highway is. <clears throat> but so yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's the story of staggering corruption. And here's the thing: is billions of dollars of the Marcos money has gone back to the Philippines, but it's a drop in the bucket. It's right. it's less than half. I mean, some of it is so well sequestered and so well hidden, and a lot of it is the fact that oh, they seized so many assets that the they can't auction stuff off fast enough. Okay, so it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. uh, according to uh, the typical cost, thousands of $2,014 per lane mile. Uh, if we're doing interstate, and because it's the Philippines, it's going to be either rolling or mountainous. Uh, reconstruction, and okay, let's reconstruct existing lane. Let's go to ad lane. We'll just call it that. Or ad lane equivalent high cost. We'll do ad lane. It's $2,000 a mile. It's $2,700 a mile. Now, that's for they, one they would be saving they would be pocketing 80% of right. $2700 per mile for one lane on flat terrain. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, so let's it, say a four lane highway across rough terrain, that is a lot of cash. Well, if you go to mountainous terrain, it is now $8,646 a mile per lane. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that's a lot of cash. Holy shit. Building a nationwide highway system. So uh, one thing I want to talk about before we, we, we finally wrap up here, Chris, you were asking us a question in the discussion chat that we were doing leading up to this episode um, about... Oh, yeah, I wanted to play a ...size game. of personal con- collections. Yes. Uh, I wanted to know, just out of curiosity... By the way, hearing the words, I want to play a game coming out of your mouth is <laughs> fucking sinister. Do you want to play a game? It's actually less sinister when you use that voice. <laughs> um, I wanted all of us to count our own shoes. Ah, uh, yes. I nice. wanted to see who had the, who was winning the Amelda Marcos Award for most <laughs> shoes on a podcast in my kitchen in 2021. Not me. Well, how, 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 how many? You claim that you have the least. How many pairs? Two pairs of shoes, two pairs of chucks, my work shoes, a pair of dress shoes, a pair of pirate shoes. Pair of flip flops, pair of sandals, and stiletto pair. heels. Are we counting slippers? Oh crap! We're I counting slippers. About that collection. No, I, I, my number's going to go no. up. 
And yeah, a pair of slippers. Only because That's I eight. did it, it'll make me feel better. If you're counting okay. slippers, we're going eight. You're going eight. Eight pairs. Now, Kyle messaged us. He's not here, but we did ask him this question. He messaged us and said he has, including slippers and his, he called them Stormtrooper boots, Star Wars Stormtrooper boots. I feel we <laughs> right. should. Yeah, let's say Stormtrooper boots. Specify. Yeah, let's go um, ahead. Before yeah, we, we are can... in the world of Q. Right. <laughs> uh, he has 14 pairs. Um,. Chris, do you want to reveal your number first, or should I? I let's go you, because I feel like I've got a pretty good shot at the title. Okay, so for me, it's uh, it's twenty three pairs. Of that's shoes. that's a pretty respectable, pretty respectable number. That includes slippers, Wellingtons, my pirate boots. Everything. I will include slippers now, so my number's going to go up a, a couple. I have thirty eight pairs of shoes. Okay. <laughs> I had no idea. I told you I was going to lose. <laughs> I was like, Jesus Christ. I'm in single digits here. <laughs> well, the thing I, is, I don't know if you're I'm still, a mel- I consider I'm, myself a fairly practical man. I have 38 pairs of shoes. What am I doing? Now, that's 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 respect. That's a lot of I'm, shoes. That's but a lot of I, shoes. I think, I think I may still have the... I, I think I may still know who the winner is because we're not factoring in Kyle's 377 dresses and gowns. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean... Which everybody's going to get to go see whenever, whenever Corey, you know, opens the gates after he's trampled to death. Whenever he's down, <laughs> it'll there. be an exhibit at the Frick. <laughs> whenever Kyle's down there, see, I uh, thought you were talking cocaine hippos. I was going to say, I thought you were talking men's shoes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, then it's way higher. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's my Mary Janes. There's my pumps. There's the chunky heels. <laughs> The knee-high lace-up stripper boots. You still have the, like... Yeah, as the a child, Oxfords. Which make your ass look great. As, oh, a, really? as a child you. of the 90s, you have the real chunky flip-flops oh. and jellies. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Of that Damn. 38 pairs, Chris, how many are Crocs? Five. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm wearing them right now. I know. <laughs> I know. I love Crocs. I un- I, I unironically love Crocs. Are it's they regular the, or in sport mode? Uh, right now, I have them in regular I don't have them in. I don't have four wheel drive engaged. My next are going to be Crocs. I I had to go getting back in the service industry. I, I ended up going with the Skechers memory foam. I See, do I never had really luck with like Skechers them. because I have I have super messed up feet. I don't know if you guys have ever seen my feet. If you haven't, good. I, I because have. they are heinous to look upon. <laughs> like I mean, it's it's Frodo Baggins, man. Like they're just they're not good. It's it's. It's the beast with seven heads wearing seven crowns. I've, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've seen your feet. They are terrible. So yeah, the, they're not great. I don't recommend so it. So on that image of Chris's feet, we're going to wrap up because somebody out there is going to enjoy that conversation. Uh, I'm going to yeah. get super funny. And I there. know who. You're going to get You're going to get weird all, emails. All yeah. three of us know who, though, because I bet <laughs> you he secretly listens. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Inside so joke, guys. So that's it for the uh, that's it for the story of Imelda Marcos, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Chris, if people want to f- find us out there, where can they do it? <coughs> oh, God. <laughs> Sorry, you sound I just like a, me. I just took a swig of the wrong beer. That was a warm one. Oh goodness gracious! Oh, okay. Uh, you can join the crew if you want to find us on Patreon.com/trrpod. You can email us at trrpod@gmail.com. Don't forget, uh, we are going to close the polls pretty soon. Uh, this is uh, 2021 is the date of record uh, for the what time my dog bit Rob's genitalia. <laughs> Going back to our first, uh, yeah, the first Justinian episode. Yeah. Close. Uh, uh, if you want to hear, you have to listen to episode two to get the full details of that. Uh, if you want to follow us on Instagram, you can follow us at TRRPod. On Twitter, at PodcastTRR. You can find us on Facebook. And be sure to throw us a like and review on whatever platform you use. Every little bit helps to appease the almighty algorithm. Yes, it does. <laughs> and right. don't forget, you can also uh, still join my cult. My cult is still active. I the just Bob sent Crane that link to a bunch of people yeah. the other day. 
Yep. We 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 are active. The Bob Crane Sex Cult dot com. <laughs> Um, we, we, we are, I do have, I do have uh, small Asian children that I've, I've worked out a deal with Nike (laughs) to make my Merkins that you'll get complimentary. Oh no. Yeah. The Bob Crane pubic mains. I'm not, I'm I'm not going to ask where they get the pubic hair, but I'm assured it's going to be all natural. (laughs) There, there is but one Bob Crane. And I am his prophet. So, God damn it. On that note, yeah, we're going to wrap up. Oh, um, actually, one more announcement. Um, uh, on the 22nd of November, Kyle lands back in Pittsburgh. Go to Pittsburgh Airport, harass him, landslide, uh, landslide, um, make signs, embarrass him. and uh, Well, especially considering we this, this is like the richest and most corrupt human being in recent history that it, we Kyle's covered. It, it makes it funnier that Kyle's not here to just be angry about we it. We didn't yeah. have our studio Bernie bro. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> the person who was the angriest about billionaires on this show was not here for Imelda Marcos. It's so right. Sad. I mean, like truly like the most blatantly ill-gotten gains we, of, right. of the, the modern we, we will Barrett. We will ask we will ask Kyle for his response on the next episode. We'll, we'll, we'll take well, a no, couple minutes. Well, no, that's going to be for our Patreon-exclusive yeah. roundtable right. with the Imelda Marcos. If you'd like to hear that, Rob... You can uh, go to www.patreon.com slash trrpod to access all of our Patreon member-exclusive content. For as little as a dollar a month. Come on, people, it's a dollar. Absolutely. You can find that much, in, uh, but that's... that's in The Catholic you, Church... There's I, that well, much it, hidden the, in the walls of your house encased in the lead. Bob yep. se- the Bob Crane sex cult charges more for indulgences. <laughs> that is true. So... That's going to do it for this uh, this episode, everybody. We're going to catch you the next time. Um, we're keeping up the trend of covering women. Uh, we got some feedback that said they wanted to hear about some more ladies, so we're uh, taking a few on here. Next time, we're talking about Elizabeth Bathory, the blood countess. Oh, yes. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Um, enjoy your shoe collections. <laughs> I'm sure if we combine them all, we can get somewhere close to 3,000. Um <laughs> Gold-plated Uzis, all that. You know. The gold-plated Uzis would be sweet, though. Man, when we launch our merch page, we look like the bad guy in all, like, the bad boys movies. That would be the best. (laughs) I want to be Jamie Kennedy. (laughs) God. Who doesn't? Don't be hating. (laughs) (laughs) All right, people. We're going to take off. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Hold fast, everybody. Out. Out.